uh, I'm like from Scotland or something, and my name is uh, Butheed. I uh, I just listened to the latest podcast, and um, like in the next one, maybe you guys could uh, suck less. Like that one guy, he sounds like the chef from the Muppets, and that other guy, he sounds like uh, he sounds like a dumbass. Yeah, <laughs> he sounds like a dumbass. And then there's this Jafeng guy who keeps on chiming in. He thinks he's so funny, but uh, he sounds like, you know, like if a fart had diarrhea. <laughs> the only thing you guys do that's cool is talk about big country. <laughs> they rule. All right, everyone, welcome back to our deep dive of The Crossing, episode 81. Let's say hi to Svein. Hello, Svein. Hello, Tom. We are both dealing with some sort of cold, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Fine is, Fine is podcasting here with me with a fever. I've got a sore throat, but here we are because we have to do it. So Yes. It, it matches kind of the, the deep dive psychosis, which is also probably a diagnosis of sorts. <laughs> yeah, it should be. Definitely should be. Well, look, we were moving along really fast in the last episode. We got two songs done. <laughs> yeah, so I, I have to ask you. I mean, we did an overview episode and we did two songs. So now we are four hours, 45 minutes into <laughs> The Crossing. Do you want to adjust your estimate for how long you think this is going to be? What did I say? Ten? 10 to 12? You you did say 10 to 12. All right. I'm going to keep it at that for now. Yeah. It's not going to be 10, you know. It's not going to be it's not going to be 10. <laughs> no. 10 it to might 12. be within 12. It might be within 12. It's still not out of the question, but definitely we are further along so far than uh than I would anticipate it myself. We are. Well, let's see how things go today. We'll see if we can get at least 3 or 4 in. We shall see. But rather than us blathering here let's just jump right into where we left off and that is with track number three on the crossing chance Stuart, you spoke of the optimism behind some of the songs in big country and chance i think is one that is in that group completely isn't it yeah well um chance is a complete opposite really and that's songs just about a situation that that is happening more and more through the world i think we're People do get divorced and someone's left to bring up kids on their own. Especially on a woman's side of it where she finds it hard to go out and, and work and stuff and like provide a decent support for them. Okay, so with that instantly recognizable and beautiful intro, we all know it's Chance. We all know it's Chance when we hear that live. Actually, when we hear that song live, we hear the uh, the kick drum that, that starts the song. 
And even that we know immediately as chance. So this is another one, another one of those songs, kind of like in a big country. That's it, not quite as much as that one, but in a lot of ways, this is no longer really a song for many big country fans. This is, you know, a part of the 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 absolute DNA of big country. You know, this is one of the songs. Uh, this is one of those classics that. We've all heard so many times live and, you know, I don't know how, how often we play it on record, but, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that becomes more than a song. So the challenge for us today is to go back to it, just like we did with In a Big Country. I promise I'm not going to take as long as I did with In a Big Country, I hope. And um, and try to look at it more as a song. Try to go back to that time when we first heard it. Go back to the time when when it didn't have the the baggage of being one of the classic live tracks or one of the songs that's always associated with big country and nothing wrong with that. It's, it's worthy of that by, by any stretch. Um, but still, you know, those types of songs, they, they can lose a little bit of their luster when, when they're so prevalent in your mind about the band. So yeah, we're going to try to polish out some of that, whatever it is, rust or whatever it might be on there and reveal some of its luster again. So for this song, there's, there's, not nearly as much to talk about musically. So I'm going to talk about the lyrics first, because I think these are just some great examples of a lyricist who sets the tone of a song in just a few lines. So let's start with the beginning. All the rain came down on a cold new town as he carried you away from your father's hand that always seemed like a fist reaching out to make you pay. Only six lines there. And yet so much is revealed already about the story of this song and about what's going on in this song from those six lines. It's, it's really great lyric writing. First of all, you know, the, the rain coming down, of course, that's a, you know, that could be looked at as a cliche in some respects rain is often used in songs to set a tone and nothing, nothing wrong with that. It, it sets a great dreary tone, but the line that I think is so um, great for this and that really sets the tone is a cold new town. What is a new town? What does that even mean? Well, and this this ties in with the kind of stuff uh, Stuart read about on the following album, Steel Town. When he says new town, what he's referring to there is like a mill town, a factory town. These are towns that sprang up around an industry. So if an industry came, you know, to a, a location where people needed work, oftentimes these towns would spring up around the factory because so many workers, you know, were needed there and wanted to be there that it just was more convenient for the work if they lived right there at the factory. Now, the problem with that is can be seen in the word cold. You know, it's it's a cold new town. There's there's no tradition there. There's no history of this town. There's no warmth in this town of what you would see like a like a place where people have lived for generations and you know the, you know the land and you know the area and you love this town where you were born or you have this like Bruce Springsteen, my hometown type of feel to where you live. That doesn't exist here because it's an industry town. It's a mill town. It's a factory town where, where people live there solely because of their work. So. I think we can establish pretty clearly that that's where this person is when the rain is coming down on this cold new town. And then as he carried you away from your father's hand that always seemed like a fist. So we've got the whole idea of a person coming from an abusive family life already. And when you say, as he carried you away, um, I think most of us would immediately assume that the he 
is carrying away a she. And that's, of course, what we what we find in the song. So already in those six first six lines of the song, which are so short and so quick, they come so quickly. We've got an amazing setting that's laid out for us that we can we can figure out what that is. And then we've got a whole background for this character um, coming from an uh, apparently abusive, you know, controlling father whose hand was like a fist, always reaching out to make her pay for something. So we get that in the in the first uh, couple stanzas of this song lyrically, which I think is fantastic. And then the next lines, he came like a hero from the factory floor. Incredibly powerful lines and again we get so much just in those few lines we get we, we see where the man is coming from he's a guy on the factory floor he's a young worker who maybe this woman worked in the same factory that were that's being sung about in the song or this her story we're hearing in the song maybe she worked in the same factory floor and this guy saw her and he uh you know they struck up some sort of relationship and we could see that this guy was promising her everything. You know, I'll take you away from all of this. I'll give you the sun. I'll give you the moon. But we then we know in the next two lines that that didn't happen. We know that we know that he has left her, and we know that he's left her with two boys. So the the song hasn't even hit a chorus yet, and we've got this really sad story that probably you can imagine has has been played out many times. And I think that's sort of the point of of this lyric is that Stuart is just writing about the the dismal nature of these types of conditions where people are poor and yeah you know, I've seen this type of song written many times by other artists you know often in country music and this song isn't really that far removed from that as far as a subject matter but you know this idea of people who are poor people who are struggling with life and they they just will reach out to anything that might take them away from it anything that might give them hope to have a better life. And quite often they become the victim of people who give them that false hope who are looking for something of their own. So we get a sense that this guy was just looking to, you know, hook up with this woman probably and uh, looking at her as a sexual thing, maybe. And that was it. And, um, you know, he promised her all these things to win her favor. And it looks like they, they got married. He must've married her and took her away from the father, but, you know, maybe, maybe he was also just as disillusioned as she was. And he realized that nothing was going to change for him. And, you know, the two sons weren't enough for him and he left. So it doesn't paint the man in a good light. That's for sure. But then after that, we get to, you know, the classic chorus and it, it's as simple a chorus as you could have, but it's so powerful. You know, Oh Lord, where did the feeling go? Oh Lord, I never felt so low. Now the question with this chorus is, who is the I? Is it is it the narrator of the song? Because he's he's been narrating the song has been narrated so far from the third person perspective. A guy assuming assuming it's Stuart, you know, 
telling us about this woman and about this man and about what's happened to her. But suddenly we get the first person perspective. Oh, Lord, where did the feeling go? Oh, Lord, I never felt so low. Um, it seems to me that, that that almost has to be the woman's voice suddenly singing these song, this, these lines, I should say, um, because it doesn't make as much sense for the narrator to be singing them unless he's singing them because he's seen too much of this and it's just overwhelming to him. And he's thinking about this particular story, but I always took it as this is the woman singing. This is the part where we slip into the first person with the woman's voice. And if that, if that is the case, then this actually is the first song, unlike come back to me, that Stuart actually did sing from a woman's perspective. And, and even if it's not, this song still very much is even in the narrated portions where it's narrated from a third person perspective, this really is very much from a, from a woman's perspective, this song. And then we get to the final verse. Now the skirts hang so heavy around your head That you never knew you were young Because you played chance with a lifetime's romance And the price was far too long First, the skirts. The skirts hanging heavy around your head. I know some people have asked, what does that even mean? You know, I, I think... I think skirts really is just something that refers to the responsibilities of motherhood. We've often heard a phrase, there's a phrase in, uh, I don't know if it's the same in, in other European countries or in Britain, but, and it, it's not even really used anymore here in America, but it, it was used for a while where you would say that someone, some, someone hides behind his mother's skirts. You know, like if, if someone, if a kid was, uh, what we would call a mama's boy or, or something where they had to always be with their mother or were always looking for the, to them for support or protection. You would say, well, this person hides behind his mother's skirts. And so skirts, you know, it's not, it's not meant to be, um, you know, literal there. Of course, it's a, it's a metaphor. The skirts reference the responsibilities of motherhood and everything a mother has to do or is, supposed to do to take care of their kids to give them you know a life as they're growing up to make sure that every, all their needs are taken care of and so here we have the skirts of motherhood but it's it's single motherhood it's and that's why they hang so heavy around this woman's head she's been left with the two kids to raise in what is obviously a very poor environment a very uh, an impoverished environment a very difficult environment even for for um a couple, you know, a married couple, it's, it's difficult. So as a single woman, all of these responsibilities are even greater, you know, they're like tenfold greater. So these skirts, these responsibilities that she has, um, are so heavy now around her head that they're just basically choking her in some respects. They're, they're not giving her any chance whatsoever to have a life of her own. And we get that out of, you never knew you were young. She's, she's old now beyond her years because she's, you know, taking care of these kids and she's doing all these things that she needs to do for them, which actually, which actually speaks very well of her. But at the same time, you know, everyone needs to have some sort of identity for themselves too, parents included, you know, and this, this person obviously doesn't have that opportunity. And this line is always, struck me as a little harsh, you know, because you played chance with a lifetime's romance and the price was far too long. I mean, it's very sad, but in, in some ways that line almost seemed a little accusatory of the woman. Like, you know, this is what happened because you took this chance. 
and, and I don't know if Stuart meant it that way, but sometimes that, that line always struck me that way. Like, oh, that's a little bit too harsh, isn't it? That's, that's not going to make this poor woman feel any better. It, it almost makes it feel like, you know, you're stuck here now. You made your bed. You got to lie in it. I'll just offer mine right away that uh, I think maybe this is how the woman feels. Like, uh, yeah, I had to play on this and look what happened to me. It, it costs too much. I regret it. So I think um, I think it switches a little back and forth. I, I agree with you about the chorus. That's definitely the woman's perspective. And I think here he he actually switches mid-verse. And then, then it kind of makes sense. Because if he doesn't, then totally you're right. That, that seems harsh again, blaming. But I think that's how she feels. Yeah, she must. You're right. She must feel that way. You know, maybe she felt like what an idiot I was to have believed this guy. The price was far too long. I think that's a really good line. It's a really interesting line. You, you never hear that. Um, and it seems kind of odd at first because I've never heard anyone say, you know, the, 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 what you would hear is the price was far too great or the price was far too large. You know, that would make or too high. Yeah. Yeah. Or too that's high. Too- exactly. That would make the logical sense. But the price was far too long. It's, it's a very poetic way to explain, you know, what's going on here. That, that this is so this third verse. Uh, clearly is years after all this has happened. Um, and you know, the price was far too long and, and this is what you're left with. What's, what's really sad about it though is that it seems like there's no, there's no hope. You would think, well, the woman must still be relatively young. You know, can't she at least have hope of finding something (laughs) out, finding someone else or doing something else? But you know, that's not, that's not the picture that's being painted here. And I think. I think this really is a, a good precursor to a lot of the Steel Town lyrics that we'll see because it really is painting this bleak picture and hopeless picture that a lot of people must have felt in these situations where they live in these factory towns and you know yeah. their their whole life revolved around those factories and you know if you're left on your own um, you're basically screwed. So this woman had nothing. She had no family to rely on, which we saw in the first couple verses. Um, and now the man that she hoped would, would at the very least be her partner through all of this and help her through all this, if not help get her away from all this clearly has abandoned her. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there aren't many prospects left. So we get the, we get that chorus again over and over again until the end. That chorus that all of us big country fans, Love to scream at the top of our lungs in the live setting, which we've talked about before. Where did the feeling go? I never felt so low. What a great football chorus chant. Quickly to the demo of this song. The demo of this song, and I'll talk about it musically in a second, but lyrically, what was interesting about this demo and... Whether it was Stewart who who made this change or Steve Lillywhite, I don't know. But whoever made it, it was a, a brilliant change. In in the demo, after the father's hand reaching out to make you pay line, that followed. That was followed by the now the skirts hang so heavy around your headline, and then the third verse in the demo is he came like a hero from the factory floor with the sun and moon as gifts. Now I don't know how that would have sat, uh, having never heard the finished version, but clearly with the finished version, it makes so much more sense to switch those verses around. Um, you know, because we've got the cape, the guy coming like a hero from the factory floor in the second verse makes sense from a timeline perspective. You know, this guy came out to 
save this girl. And then later, years down the road, the skirts are hanging so heavy around her head. But in the demo, those were switched around where the skirts came first. And then the guy comes like the hero from the factory floor, which really doesn't make much sense. So great lyrics, but just in the wrong place. And whoever made that decision to switch them around, um, I think it was a great decision. So lyrically, I think it's just... You know, an, an amazingly great song lyrically from Stewart. And again, when you think of how young he was at the time, which we often forget, it's it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's amazingly impressive that someone could have that sort of empathy for these situations uh, at such a young age. I mean, just in his early 20s at, at the time. So amazing lyrics and, and quite rightly a classic big country song um, just for those alone. But musically, you know, it's probably one of the most simple songs that big country has ever really recorded as far as the instrumentation um, and just the simplicity of it. There, there aren't any big sprawling solos there. There aren't really any gigantic bass lines or, or uh, big drum rolls or drum fills. I mean, it's all played perfectly and beautifully and, and exactly what the song needs, but it's uh, it, it's very simplistic and it it's, and it, and I think that's great and works perfectly. It also is a perfect third track for an album. I mean, especially back then when albums meant something, you know, people put so much stock into the tracking order of an album. And quite often it was like this, but it was for a reason. I mean, you often started out with a big barnstormer, like in a big country, quite often followed up by another uh, upbeat song, um, Maybe not quite as intense, but sometimes as intense or more intense. You could make the argument that Inwards um, is just as intense as In a Big Country. But usually that third track would almost always be the ballad or bringing things down a little bit. And that's what they do here. And I think that works perfectly for the tracking order of the song. It's what's really needed. Um, but we start with that iconic intro. Just very simple. Two notes being plucked with an open D string uh, droning over top of that. Uh very easy, very simple, and very beautiful. And so many of, of the classic songs have that quality where they have that beautiful simplicity, but something that just really grabs you immediately. And that's what we've got here. Um, so many layers in this song. Uh, we get, we get the first, uh, use of acoustic guitar in the big country recorded catalog. It's subtly mixed in the song. It comes out more toward the end when the, when the final chorus kicks in and that they actually bring the acoustic guitars up and the strumming which really is nice, but it really comes out more. If you listen to the 12 inch mix of this song, you can hear the acoustics. And I think that even starts with acoustics. It's also one of those songs where it's got basically the clean big country sound with that little delay on it, um, that beautiful, crisp, clean guitar sound uh, that, again, became synonymous with big country to so many of us. And this isn't the bagpipe type of sound. This is more another, I think, version of a very original, unique big country sound. If you compare it to anything, it's probably more similar to stuff that The Edge was doing with U2 at the time, but it still was different. And it had like its own unique style to it, but it, it gave everything just this rich, deep, uh, just classic, beautiful, regal sound almost. And it just sort of elevates 
the entire song to something greater than just a standard rock and roll song. I mean, it, it just gives you those those big feels, as they would say. So I, lo- I love the guitars throughout this song. Um, you know, the little melodic lead part, which has the muted pluck notes. You know, people always say that it sounds a little bit like chopsticks. moment a cool little lead break and if you can call it that it's not really a lead break it's more just like a little instrumental break but um a great little melody line that's brought into the song you know it's just beautiful and it's its own entity within the song which i love and you know about i love that about most solos it's not just someone you know wanking about it's like it's this own it's its own entity it's its own melody and it's a really nice part of the song that sort of gently takes us and prepares us for the next portion of it um ebo is in this song as well it's again subtly mixed you can hear it a lot more and a lot better on the 12 inch mix We get that nice padding, Ebo padding, which sometimes doubles what's being played with the regular guitars. And it just gives the song such a nice, beautiful, clean, majestic, layered feel to it. So I think this is just a an amazing job by Steve Lillywhite, amazing production job. Everything is is played so beautifully and so perfectly in line with the lyrics and what the what the song is intended to the feelings the song is intended to convey. Um, you know, and, and one interesting thing too about this musically, they, they could have gone into like the traditional big ballady guitar solo at some point in this song. There's a, there's what you would call a solo break later on in the song after the chorus um, played over the chorus chords. But what they really do is they just play this, basically the same guitar part that's played when Stewart is singing over the chorus. It's beautiful and it's it's it works much better than some sort of uh you know fast big solo it's just it's just plaintive it's very sweet it's very melancholy and uh again it fits the lyrics of the song perfectly and and i always got chills when when they would play this live when stewart would often say this is yours he would say right before launching into that you know he would sing the chorus and then he would say this is yours and then he would play that guitar part with the chorus and just oh it's just so beautiful um just gorgeous getting goosebumps right now just talking about it one of the best parts of the song musically is the crescendo uh toward the end when the distorted guitars kick in.
and that adds to the emotion of it as well. You know, that adds to the the sense of you know the character in the song just really really feeling it, really the emotion building up, maybe them look, looking back and seeing the mistakes they made, they made um, or the things that happened that they wish could have been changed and just feeling very intensely emotional about it. And that's an, a really emotional part of the song. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great song. It's, it's, it's such a great little package. Um, the last thing I'll say about the demo, the comparison of the demo, demo is very, uh, is very similar to the final version of the song and, and, it was apparently written around the same time that in a big country was written, which is, which says a lot. I mean, if, and if that's the case and Stuart was really, really focused and really uh, hitting, hitting some, some gold, getting some gold right there at that point in time to write in a big country and chance, right. You know, right at the same time, but really the, the, the main difference in the demo is something that I, again, I think uh, if it was Lily White's decision, it was a great decision. If you listen to the demo, it's a, it's a, the main thing that's different is the bass part in the in the verses it's a little too busy in the beginning tony's got this kind of cool part playing there but everything is being played i think in a way that's a little too busy, a little too fast, a little too intense for the song's lyrics uh, and and the mood that it's trying to convey. And let's listen to what Steve Lillywhite did and how he changed that. So I think that really makes a big difference, uh, bringing things back a little bit, less notes, uh, as they say, uh, and and not only that, but slowing things down just a touch, bringing the intensity of the drums down just a touch, all that stuff. You know, that's what a great producer does. You know, they could see that this is a great song. You can see that he didn't really change the arrangement of the song at all. Um, we already talked about this l- lyrical change, which I think was great. But then this little change, too awesome made the song perfect and so this is truly you know a very deserving big country classic it's got the same issues for me that in a big country does uh and i'm sure that's the case for many in that we just heard it so much that it just becomes something else so it's not a song that i'll just go to because i you know i've heard it so many times i don't really feel like i need to need to search it out most of the time but that said it can't be denied of how great of a song it is. Great example of Stewart's incredible songwriting already, and uh, as well as Steve Lee White's amazing touch as a producer. So I think it's a great big country song, standout track on the album, and uh, a deserved classic. I don't know. I don't know if it's my fever speaking, but that made a ton of sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fever. Yeah. It's the fever. I got the fever, baby. Now, usually, um, usually we compliment each other well, but this time I think you stole my thunder with this song. I think um, a lot of what I have is very similar to what you have, which means, uh, you know, in terms of especially lyrical discussion, there's not a whole lot of uh, ways to read it. Of course, we're going to read it the same way, or most people, I think, would read it the same way. But we can certainly marvel at how good they are and that uh, there, there's no... 
denying I'm going to do that too. But uh, let's just mention yet again, since we're discussing the song now, that this was a single. It was the fourth single uh, released in August 1983. It made number nine in the UK, which is their best charting single thus far from Big Country and the best one from uh, from The Crossing. So good choice there. It's a little surprising in hindsight to, to think of that. It, it kind of toppled both Fields of Fire and especially in a big country. But um, that that's the UK. I think the most interesting thing to me is that uh, the single was released mostly across Europe and in some South American countries and, uh, and South Africa too. Uh, but in many other territories, it wasn't released. And that includes the US and Scandinavia too. It wasn't released as a single. Which, uh, the more I think about it, it's a little strange decision especially in the North Americas, as uh, in a big country was such a big hit there in the US and in particular Canada, I guess. So um, I don't know if that was lack of faith in the song or if they just didn't want to release a single because they didn't release another song either. So uh, that's... Uh, that is odd. It, it, is, uh, it is more than odd. I think it is strange. Um, but yeah, so be it. I think in Scandinavia in particular, we weren't stopped because it became a radio hit here, which means that when radio wanted to play a song from the Big Country album, Chance was the song they would play. That was the one that they decided on, and usually they would do that. They would pick a song that would get repeat play on radio. So you could say that not having a single for that song was a lost opportunity in that when the song was played, it didn't promote a single. But I think it still did a lot of good for Big Country because uh, it helped promote the album instead. And uh, thanks to that song, I think The Crossing sold pretty well in, uh, in across Scandinavia, really. And uh, so this really is the most known song from that time in Norway, or at least it was back then. So that means, in addition to being played on radio, when they... Uh, we're going to make compilation albums with hits. That was the song that was picked. And I've told that story many times before. And I got to just give it a brief mention again. I actually posted this week on the Great Divide Facebook group a picture of that compilation tape that uh, my yeah, dad picked I up that. at that a gas great. station. Yeah, it's, it's probably the most important release uh, in my sort of musical life because if it wasn't for that tape i don't know if i would have really explored big country i don't know what it would have led to and then i certainly would not be doing this podcast and my life right now would be extremely different so uh, it all goes back to to this song it all goes back to chance so there's a lot of nostalgia for me when it comes to this song that is really extending beyond the song itself but when, uh, when I talked about this song before, I mean, I mentioned this story many times, and the first time was back in episode three, when I told about my initiation to Big Country. And you asked me a question, and what it was about this song that made me like it so much, what it, why I latched onto it. And at the time, I really hadn't thought about it, so I don't know if I gave a very elaborate answer. But uh, having thought a little bit more about it now, I think of all the things that made the song stand out, it's all the hooks in the song. The song has so many hooks that are very unique that just make it rise above. And you mentioned many of these in your uh, musical run-through. Uh, first and foremost, that guitar picking. When the song starts 
and it builds and it goes into that uh, I think you called it chopstick which probably is a name we shouldn't keep using <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of sell that section short a bit but but that section with the beautiful guitar picking that it really goes through the song many many sections And that is really lovely and very unique. You notice it right away. It stands out. And then you have the chorus with really the vocal harmonies and the, the melodic hook of just the melody itself. It's so strong. I, I just keep coming back to that melody where I mentioned the, a song like Inverts perhaps didn't have the strongest vocal melody in the world. It's catchy enough, humble uh, in some ways. But Chance is beautiful, and that has all of that. It's catchy, hummable, and beautiful, and lovely harmonies to boot. And that just sells the melodic hook line. That's a song that you can whistle, you can hum it. And it's not just beautiful, it's really emotional. This melody has a melancholy flair that at least uh, us Nordic types kind of latch onto. I think all of our successful bands have that streak in them, and we recognize that streak somewhere else. So... A very, very emotional melody to boot. So, in short, there's nothing throwaway. There is nothing throwaway about this song. It's really substantial, I think, and that is noticeable. And you can pick up on that. Especially, a lot of people made fun of all the other acts on that named uh, compilation tape. There's, <laughs> it, it really was um, easy for a big country to stand out in that company, and a lot of people took a liking to Culture Club. They had a song there. We, we can't escape from Culture Club. That's kind of big country's nemesis that keeps showing up. But at least in this case, I didn't go the way of Culture Club. I went the way of big country. And that is uh, obviously because Chance is a far superior song to Karma Chameleon. Uh, yeah, so all <laughs> the melodic hook lines, the Ebo as well. When, when that Ebo came, I can honestly say I had never heard a sound like that ever in my life. I've never heard anything used this way. That is so unique, mm. so lovely. The more I sort of grew to know Big Country's catalog, the more I wondered, why, why is it such a rare instrument? Why don't people use it? I think the answer is simply that it's such an emotional instrument. You can't just put it in a bland, glossy pop song. It would feel out of place but on an emotional song that tugs at the heart street, like, like Chance and all the big country songs, it, it feels very naturally there. And then it enhances it as it should. But uh, be that as it may, um, I'm not going to recap everything. But uh, one thing we can do is uh, highlight uh, something from the interview we did with Mark. And this is all the way back in episode 32 of The Great Divide. He actually told us the story of sitting by the piano with Stuart and coming up with the vocal melody of that guitar-picking part of, uh, of this song. So let's, uh, let's go back and listen to what he said about that now. I mean, I have told this story before, but I remember years ago, we were sitting by the piano, and I don't know what studio it was. Um, I was in a studio somewhere because we were in so many studios, whether it be in Scotland or in London or in a demo studio or a master studio. And Stuart was at the piano and me and Stuart used to try and play the piano together. I'd sit on one end of the stool, we'd sit on the other. And we'd just play one finger stuff and he'd come up with a little riff on the piano with one finger. 
and I'd come out with a counter melody on the on the other side, be it higher up or lower down. And I and I said to him, why don't we do something where we don't hit any white notes? Just let's stay on all the black notes because it always sounds a little bit. Um, I'll probably come up with the wrong explanation here. Chinese or oh, right. uh, like a chopstick type song. Yeah, yeah chopstick completely. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's that basic. And that's where chance kind of came from. There was there was already the bones of chance through Bruce and Stuart. And I went onto the keyboards and it kind of, we ended up playing a little bit of chance and uh, as was already there. And then I came up with the, um, the, the intro section, which was all on the black notes, bar one white note you have to hit, which most people have no idea that I was um, involved in that, which was that, they're all on the black notes, bar one note, <laughs> which if you play that, you'll see the one I mean. Um, it's little things like that, that, you know, I didn't make any noise about that, but um, I'm always involved in contributing in that in in the whole thing rather than and and vocally, as you know, I like singing as well, rather than sitting playing the drums. Yeah. So now we know if you want to play this back on the piano, use the black notes. <laughs> That's so great. That is fantastic. And, and we should mention too that he mentioned Bruce Watson, and and uh, I didn't want to certainly don't want to leave him out of the the uh, songwriting process with this track too. So yeah. And and these songs were credited to all of them. So remember that as well. Yeah. They all had their little part and then, you know, who knew Mark and Stewart sat by the piano and came up with that little guitar counter melody. And that's good. And you kind of said it too, that this almost feels like its own entity within the song. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it is of course, and it's, um, it's one of many segments in the song that uh, make it stand out because the average pop song would have the basic thing down and you get to the chorus and you sing it and you go back to the verse and maybe there's a guitar solo. Whereas this one has specific meaty components that actually feel significant and they add to it. And it's really built um, into a solid thing. Even though the song is very simple, it just falls together very nicely. So yeah, you, you can remove all this bit and you would still have the song, but it really uh, adds to it. So, yeah, I, th I think you mentioned a lot of uh, really the demo comparisons and, uh, and further things. But musically, it's really simple. So I'll just mention something about the lyrics. And I have uh, actually uh, a photograph of something that was posted on a big country Facebook group. I, I forget which one, but uh, it's from a magazine, one of those pop magazines from around 1983. And they're doing uh, a thing with Stewart called Personal File. It was a column, and it has a lot of typical pop magazine questions. So they have Stuart answer, first record bought, first concert, what jobs do you have, what's the last book you read, have you got any pets, kind of <laughs> typical fluff. But one of the questions in the middle of this, and that's what I latched down to, is a simple enough question, which is, what is chance about? And uh, that gave us the following answer, and I quote, it's the story of a girl who has had a hard time at home and marries the first guy who comes along. She has loads of kids, and he beats it. It's happened to a few people I know, and I think it's absolutely disgusting. Mm. So um, it didn't really reveal anything we didn't know, but uh, what this tells me definitely is Stuart's passion about this, the situation that he describes. And uh, yeah, like he said, it's absolutely disgusting. So... 
he he writes a song about it. He puts it in song form. And also, I have a quote from Melody Maker 1990, where he says, I like the wee subtle things, the acoustic numbers. I like that ring of sincerity and sentimentality. Is Chance our classic tearjerker? I think so. In a way, Chance has worked perfectly, because it's, it's become other people's song more than ours. This tour may be the last time songs like Chance are played. It lends too much predictability to the live show. Chance has been one of the peaks of the live show for a long time. It's time to produce another song. End quote. So as we know, they still played it <laughs> and still play it. And what, what so, was that? What year was that quote from again? This was likely right after Pat DeHearn joined in, uh, in 1990, after the Save Me single. It must have been thereabout. So he was ready to write another song to replace Chance then. I guess he didn't. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting question. Not to get off, not to get too much off a, on a tangent here, but do you think there was anything post nineteen ninety that could have rivaled that as a Sh- ships? Yeah, the, yeah. You know what? That probably would have been it. That yeah, would have and, been he, it. and he might have had that. I think that was amongst the early songs he had. And uh, didn't you say it? He showed those two songs, Kansas and Ships, to the record company ahead of No Place Like Home, and they weren't interested. Yeah, that's right. And it's funny you mentioned ships because I remember uh, reading in an old country club from around 1991 where um, uh, John Giddings was was talking about Stewart and he and he talked about how Stewart is writing still writing masterpieces like Chance and Ships. He mentioned both of those in the same <laughs> sentence. So uh, yeah. yeah, so interesting. Yeah, that that would have been. I think you're right. That's a good choice. I must say I highly prefer Chance to Ships, but that's a different discussion. Yeah, I do as but, well. Uh, yeah, well, Chance does have a very unique place. It's it's like you say, core. It's kind of like discussing replacing in a big country with a new song. You just don't do it. Yeah, it can't be done. No. Every band has some songs. You just don't talk about replacing them with something new. I mean, as an artist, yes, you should strive for it. But in reality, a song could end up having too much of a sacred place in the band's chronology. Now, so Chance, um, like we uh, heard in the first quote, it's a story of a girl who has a hard time at home, and you kind of alluded to all these lines, like uh, the new guy carried her away from her father's hand. That always was a fist that made her pay. So abusive relationship, really, with the father. I don't get the sense that the new guy necessarily was abusive. He was just uh, non-committed and abandoned her. I don't see evidence in the lyrics that he was similar abusive as, as, as the father was. No, I don't. He could have. He could. He could have been, but it's not really. That's not the picture he's painted, and that's not really what Stuart says in his quote in the in the magazine either. It's uh, kind of like she has loads of kids and he beats it, and that's the whole thing. There's um, different ways of abusiveness, really. And I, I really like this one line. There's, uh, <laughs> he came like a hero from the factory floor. That is the line that uh, if there's any humor at all to be found in this song, and there probably isn't, but if there is, that is the line. I just see this image of this guy rising from the factory floor, and what a place that is to rise from to mm-hmm. begin with, and rising like a hero. It's just, I just see this deadbeat, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, guy. And it's just really her situation at home that is so hopeless that, you know, he's, you know, the sun and the moon. Well, he delivered, if if the sun was taking her away from the father, then short term, yeah, he did that. But uh, the moon, which was to build a a future together, 
no, he didn't do that. So she was stuck in a different situation, and that's uh, that's really where the song is. And uh, it's um, yeah, you covered it so well. I don't think I need to really go into many more lyrics, but 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 that hero from the factory floor. That's the one line that I kind of almost have as a favorite line, even though it's a nothing line. But it's it, it describes so well this this loser of a guy who comes from <laughs> the factory floor and like a like a hero and. I kind of get the feeling that everybody would see that he's a loser, but but she didn't because of her situation, and that probably is also a point in the song. And I think, like a lot of songs that Stewart wrote, he he doesn't necessarily provide a solution, and we would see that more in his later years as a writer, uh, writing lyrics, and especially since we spoke about Damascus um, in the previous deep dive. There's a lot of songs there that paint the current situation, and they don't provide the way out. Um, yeah, or even any hope in this song, really. Yeah, or, or even any hope, right? It, that That's just the current situation. It's kind of like, uh, let's take a song like Living by Memory, Snapshot. You're catching the peak at the, the peak of his indifference. He's, he's likely not going to stay there the rest of his life. Uh, and this girl might even have more opportunities, but we don't know because this is the moment that's described, and that's where they are at now. So that that's always fascinated me that uh, a lot of people in songwriting try to point forward or try to come with a solution. And Stewart was never really bothered with that. He wanted to paint a snapshot. And he often did that. And he caught them so well that you can't help but wonder, what about? What happens to this girl? And you want to know. It's human nature. You want to find out. But you won't find out from this song. Uh, he would need to write a sequel later. And there's probably, if we start looking through his catalog of writings maybe there were some examples where he revisited themes but um, no not not really that often so that's also something that that fascinates me from a storytelling perspective we should also mention how great that 12-inch version of the song is especially that outro the song retains its fade but the acoustic guitar stays um, in the picture and keeps playing just such a lovely part that I, I kept playing that part over and over just the do 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 yes I'm and so glad you brought um, that up because I meant to <laughs> uh, I forgot but yeah that's yeah, that's the, the, my favorite part of the whole song that 12 inch mix uh, outro I, I love it it's so gorgeous I love it it's so wonderful and it, it's it's obviously there in the song but if that hadn't been highlighted like that in the 12 inch mix I, I don't know if I would have noticed this the same way yeah that, that's sort of the spotlight that the 12 inch mix would provide to certain musical parts and for chance, I mean, I I love it so much. In um, you know, when I rehearsed with my band, like in back in the Stone Age when I was a kid, I used to play that part on guitar over and over again. And all the guys said, "Oh, what's what's what's, what's that? Can we make a song of that?" And of course, uh, I said, "Yeah, sure." And uh, 
we didn't use acoustic guitars necessarily in that band, so that became like a riff. Hmm. So somewhere on a cassette tape somewhere, I have a, a metal riff version based on that guitar part. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <so> lovely. <laughs> so that that. that that riff went far, yeah. No, but that—that's a lovely part. I, I think that's uh, like when, when you put the spotlight on any individual performance, they—they they will usually stand out with this band. But that one definitely is—is uh, is one of them. So, uh, yeah. In in closing, I, I want to mention something about the song title, "Chance." I mean, this song begins really the trend of songs taking their title from somewhere in the lyrics, not found in the chorus. This was highly fascinating to me back in 1983. And I guess when I think about it today, it's still a little unique way, really, a fascinating way of naming your songs. And if you look at The Crossing, this, um, this was done for Chance, The Storm, Harvest Home, Lost Patrol, Close Action, Poro Man. In other words, the majority of the songs on The Crossing take their titles from somewhere not obvious, from a verse line. Certainly not from the chorus. So that that always struck me as extremely unique. And um, back when the album was released, and it's still unique to me today, it's um, it's something they did now and then, but nowhere near as much as they did on The Crossing. The, the best example of this, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but if you take the title Close Action, that phrase is not even mentioned in the lyrics of that song. Uh, at least all the other ones have their title or title phrase or word mentioned somewhere in the verse line and that is the case for chance as well you played chance with a lifetime's romance so by highlighting that word you're, you're probably coming close to the line that Stuart wants to emphasize in the song like sometimes he had a couple of lines that he wanted to emphasize and sometimes those lines became sort of core to big countries uh, mythology or, or key messages from the band and I'm not sure that because you played Chance with the Lifetime's Romance and the press was far too long, became that, really. But uh, in this song, that is a crux, really, of it. She took a chance. She blew it. She knows she, blows it. she blew it. And the uh, price was far too long. I think she, she feels like this is a life sentence at this point, which is kind of rough when you, you have two sons. But uh, when you're at a dead-end situation, then, uh, then that, that is how you feel. And like I mentioned before, this is a snapshot, so hopefully she snapped out of it as well. We do have a comment from Tony. Uh, he commented on each of these songs, and Chance of Sonorosi had a little bit to say about. So what Tony said in 2006 was, This song was written during the same time as in a big country, and when we recorded them both, I had an idea I had only ever dreamed about before, the likelihood of having hit singles. But I had never knew how much power it had until I first heard you guys singing the song back to us. Again, just love the textures of this recording. Strange to hear Stuart's developing voice. He was very much the crooner in the beginning, but developed it to the identifiable voice we all know. What a simple yet anthemic chorus. And I guess we can say something about that chorus before we totally leave it, because uh, you mentioned the football chant. Uh, how unique isn't it? How big country isn't it? To have a song about the dreariness of feeling as low as you've ever felt and uh, cheering that out <laughs> as an anthem in a crowd with one, two, three, four to boot.
I don't know how I feel about it, but when, when I listen to how they played this back in uh, 1983 in the Crossing Tour, then it seems very pure and people are singing along and then you have more the element of sharing the song. I think uh, the one, two, three, four is really where it goes too far. And I've said this before. And granted, I've never really been in a show. I am probably a, a sourpuss for saying this, but uh, I just don't feel it's appropriate. I think it's a little uh, weird and crazy to one, two, three, four, and then saying it. If you listen to um, really the new box set from Rock Palast, I don't know if you you have it. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and then the one for the Seer tour where they play Chance. That's still Stuart is still potty training the audience into saying one, two, three, four. We can all share the song rather than us just playing it. Okay, here we go. Ready? One, two. It, it, it clashes with really the song. I don't think people who hear it live think about what the song is about. I think, like you said, it's just become a standard. And we are so used to it that we, we, don't, we distance ourselves away from that and we just join in the communal thing. Chance has, has been a song that's, that's stuck with us right from, from day one. It's always been a kind of a, a focal point of our live set. Uh, and I think that the, it was good for us to be able to take it out of the kind of electric set and, and do an acoustic version of it and change the emphasis of the song and just sing it as the kind of misplaced love song that it is. It's got also got an incredible hook. It has got a very good hook. The kids love to sing it. And you can do that, but these are two different worlds. And when we discuss the song and the lyrics as we do now, uh, that's very, very separate from what goes on at live shows. But there's also something to be said for, you know, a group of people sharing in that line and feeling the same, you know, basically recognizing that we all feel that way. But it's just a communal thing, just a shared joy of, of the music. To be clear, singing along, great. One, two, three, four, too much. <laughs> Where do you rank this song? I rank it at number six. And very similar to In a Big Country, I feel like this is one of the best written songs on the album. So, but it's just, I, you know, I went with what I usually prefer to listen to. I don't know. I, I, I rank it as number six, even though I will probably never seek this song out very rarely. But it's just such a well-written, beautiful song that I, I couldn't dump it to the bottom of the list. So it's number six for me. Yeah. Yeah, same with me, really. I uh, I have it at number eight. All right. Well, that's probably our closest so far. Yes. Now it's uh, it's a wonderful song. It it really is. It's uh, it's the song that opened the door for me 
it's not a song that really necessarily made me fall in love with the band. Some of those will, will come later, but uh, definitely it opened the door. And it will always have a special place for me. But uh, yeah, it's uh, some. It's really down to lyric relevance for me. I love the lyrics, but the ones that really connect with me are ones with higher personal significance. And you know, I never fell for a hero from the factory floor. So there you go. All right, so that's eight for me. It's six for you, and it's time to look at what the the people's vote gave chance. It's actually um, close to uh, closer to me than to you. It's eight. It's kind of right where I have it at number eight. Um, and as I mentioned last time, the uh, the minimum sum a song can get is eighty. The maximum is eight hundred out of votes. Chance got four hundred seventy nine. So that's kind of in the middle there, uh, at an average of uh, five point nine, close to six average. But uh, that places it eighth o- overall. And uh, the interesting thing is uh, four people ranked it number one and nine people ranked it at last at number 10. So um, that's, uh, that's that song. All right. So we cannot leave Chance without returning to the guest who made his debut on the last episode. Filthier now because it's been a while since we have had him out of the cage. Get out. Come out. <laughs> Karate Bark Countdown for Chance. Let's hear it, pig. Crossing Karate Bark Countdown. Zero. Yeah, I figured that would have zero Karate Barks. That is not a surprise. Kind of sad, though. Okay, that takes us to 1,000 stars. a very interesting song especially following chance there seemed to be a lot of um, mixing things up pretty well on the album first going from an anthem to a quick one to a ballad another quick one and this um, this song when you look at what it's about or what the lyrics say what it purposely is about um, it should be pretty evident but let's just start with what is going on here in the song uh, thousand stars refers to a nuclear attack on the UK the message of the song is basically, if the bomb hits, we're all toast. That is what the song says. If you want to sum it up in one line, that's it. They say if you see a shooting star, it means good luck. You can make a wish. But in the situation where a nuclear attack hits, it's not. Um, there, there's no hope. Not even the luck of a thousand shooting stars can help in that situation. And that's what he says in the chorus. And this uh, is something Stuart was clearly concerned with. He, uh, he spoke about this in interviews at the time. 
And he often said that if uh, World War Three happened, Fife would be targeted due to the location of the Russian submarine base. And he mentioned this specifically in the book A Certain Chemistry, where he said, there are apocalyptic images in the songs. It's something that's with me constantly, and it's something that's uh, brought home quite hard living in this area. We have the dockyard, heavy servicing for submarines, and the Maritime Command for Scotland. So we're a prime target here. Make no bones about it. If anything does happen, it's going to be bye-bye this area. End quote. So this... Uh, is something we need to keep in mind here, the mindset of the 1980s during the Cold War. Uh, it's hard to imagine now, but people had this threat that an attack could happen at any point of time. And it, um, How close it was to actually happen is one thing, but there was a rhetoric and a lack of dialogue between nations and uh, a nuclear race that uh, is hard to imagine today, even though we know about it. Uh, we can't quite switch on again the feel of those times and uh, i must admit personally i was a teen during the 80s but probably very shielded from the seriousness of these matters and also living in a small and relatively peaceful country and in the countryside no less and add the naivety of youth on top of that if i was aware of this on any level at all which i can't say i was i, I doubt i thought much about it um, I never thought it would matter to me and my family. I didn't really follow this. But I know now that lots of people were thinking about this quite a bit. And uh, especially the closer you live to a potential target, such as the submarine base in Rosyth. We had no similar targets or really any military presence whatsoever where I grew up. So back then, I never saw this song in this light, even though I read the lyrics at, as an 11-year-old and beyond. Uh, I didn't have really the hooks to hang the song on, or the lyrics, uh, until much later. So I just saw this back then as a boy's own image, where people are out in nature, perhaps, pointing up in the, uh, pointing, up, pointing up in the sky at a shooting star, and maybe even a dramatic shooting star coming at them, or something like that. that um, but that might actually be closer to the song Spirit than I realized at the time. Something coming at you from the sky. It just wasn't a shooting star. But uh, you... When you keep all of this mindset in mind as you start looking at the lyrics, and then you delve into the first verse, which goes... And you realize these guys playing their final hand are the they, they are the guys in charge. The final hand is the, the ultimate weapon. Uh, come in here, listen to our plan. And this time, like never before, only the Black Queen scores. Our cards are high and so wild, we should burn it. And back then, war was often referred to as a chess game. Like one country would make a move, the other one would respond. That illustrates the Cold War extremely well. It was, um, there was no dialogue. There was a series of moves and counter moves between uh, the large nations of the world. And uh, it's like he says, this card, he has this wild card or his card up his sleeve, but it's so high and so wild, we should burn it. And the cost is too high. You know, who wants to start throwing nuclear bombs around? You know, you're going to be retaliated in kind. It's, uh, it's one of those things that uh, it's, it's becomes a, a threat 
no, if you use it, if you don't use it, it's just uh, you should burn that card. You should not consider using it. Uh, it's, it's really a statement from Stuart on what he feels about this whole thing. So, uh, again, that takes us into the chorus. The luck of a thousand stars can get me out of this. The luck of a thousand stars losing its charm, which is a very dry line to, to illustrate with. That Normally, the luck of a thousand stars would be like wonderful, plenty of luck. But here it's not enough. You know, when the bomb is approaching, it's too late. So, yeah, so this kind of luck, if you, you might have it, but you won't need it because it's not enough. It's losing its charm. It's not enough. So um, going back into the second line, and this comes into a very interesting campaign that was going on in the UK at the time. The phrase protect and survive has been used by Big Country and also another Scottish band, Runrig. Uh, and that comes from the, a time in the UK around 1980 or so. The UK government issued a booklet with that title, Protect and Survive. And it was released to all UK public libraries describing how to survive a nuclear war by crouching underneath tables or doors removed from their hinges or aluminum foil from the windows and uh, you know it it really had anything except crossing your fingers but it's kind of in the same way and uh, there was an animated film at the time when the wind blows which had part of its soundtrack by roger waters incidentally that showed the process and it might even have shown the booklet in that film uh, i think you had something similar in america with the phrase duck and cover uh, i'm not sure if it overlaps exactly yeah it was but this, very similar yeah but this this thing, protect and survive, it's uh, it's obviously totally ridiculous. Uh, I don't know if it was meant to create a sense of security or if it was just ignorance, not understanding really what the gravity of what would happen if a nuclear bomb would fall, or just purposefully misleading propaganda to avoid mass panic. Anything's possible. Uh, I think if a nuclear bomb lands in your area, I don't think it matters what table you hide under or whether your windows have aluminum foil in front of them or anything like that, there will be a crater in the ground for miles and the destruction goes far beyond that. And if you're lucky enough to survive that, what awaits you is a slow, agonizing death due to radioactive fallout where you can observe firsthand how parts of your body fall off or, or worse. So I don't think uh, I could have issued a booklet like protect and survive with a straight face telling people that you can live through a nuclear war by hiding under the sofa and by whitewashing the windows to reflect the radioactive blast back it's um <laughs> it, it boggles the mind the more you read about that and Stuart clearly felt the same way and that's what he's saying in this verse he thought protect and survive was a load of cod swallop like uh, some say protect and survive i say it's over like yeah you can you can read that book if this happens there's there is no hope so there are people I have loved, hypnotized by lies in defensive disguise. There's no doubt what he's talking about here. It's kind of, he's very doomsday about his things, but also call a spade for a spade. Um, so that takes us really to the final verse. The third and final verse of Thousand Stars, and it's going down. At this point, the bomb is falling, and all we can do now 
is spend those last precious moments together with your loved ones. So while you hold each other, and uh, really, like he says, it's not between you and me, but we are losing. You know, we are the, the victims of this, uh, this final hand that is being played out by the people in charge. And that's kind of uh, really the song. It paints a doomsday scenario, kind of like don't... Um, his solution, actually, is in the first verse. It's a card so high and so wild, we should burn it. And the rest really shows what happens if you don't burn it. Then all these other things will happen. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's um, it's 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 really laid out there, but he's laying it out very harshly. So uh, even though it's easy enough to talk about the song, it's also hard to talk about the song because this this gives you very little comfort. It's very hard to do something with, and this is thematically it goes through the authorship and even to the later years of of Big Country. You, all the way up to the Journey album, they had a song called Winter Fire, which uh, has personal fires, communal fires, and then worldwide fires. And that last verse kind of point to that, like, yeah, this isn't a personal fire, it's not between you and me, but because this is happening on a global level, we're still losing, and we can't put out this thing on our own. So, kind of an interesting uh, thing to look at, but very, very, very bleak. But I have to mention the new meaning, because um, there was new meaning and inserted, really, into some of these lines. And that was when this song was played again by the reformed big country in 2010-11. And the Thousand Stars was often the opening song. And they would come out on stage, and Mike looks out at the audience and he sings... Don't be afraid to come on this journey with me because here the band is back and now we play our final hand. Come closer, understand us. So when they came back and played that song, those two lines became about the band almost. Like uh, they knew what they were doing and a lot of people latched onto this and said, wow, this, uh, this gets a new meaning now when they're coming back and uh, we're all obviously still healing and the, the fact that the band is coming back is great and uh, Mike infused a lot in those lines especially like he would he would be the one to sort of make it super clear there's nothing subtle about mike's delivery so yeah that that's that was a new meaning that was infused into those lines and that's uh, that's awesome i, I really uh, appreciated that myself mm, interesting so um that's the lyrics really the music is um it's also very interesting in this song uh especially the genesis of the song, because Thousand Stars has never been listed amongst the songs that were demoed at Town Hill in May 1981, but it was knocking about in very early form. And uh, as I'm sure everybody knows, uh, the earliest version of this is called Flag of Nations Swimming.
that was recorded in the fall of 1981. So it, it might have been knocking about when they did the Townhill uh, things and worked out stuff together. But I'm not aware that they actually demoed it. But they did record it at Abbey Road Studio, of all places, produced by John Lecky in the fall of 81. And if you remove that crazy keyboard loop, that is, uh, really steals a lot of your attention when you listen to Flag of Nations. Uh, remove that crazy keyboard loop and re- remove also that less crazy, but uh, the skids-like keyboards. What you have then is a very basic instrumental demo form of Thousand Stars, where especially the bass part is thundering along and quite recognizable as the verse bass line, at least in the, the right sections. So... Um, that was the first genesis of it, and then jump a year or so forward, and it was part of what the material they had when they went into Chris Thomas and beyond, and demoing it for for eventually what was the album. So the song starts with a driving drum beat, and this is really what made it such an effective song to use as a show opener when they did that, uh, and add to that drum beat the piercing high-pitched guitar line. Augmented by the way by a, a second more mid-range guitar. It sounds very urgent right away, and especially coming right after a song like Chance. So they kick off with that, and the vocal comes straight in, and the vocal deliver really a strong, loud vocal in a loud range for Stuart, I might say, at the time. I don't think he was used to singing in that high range and maybe not even comfortable singing in that range. But the fact that he does that here adds to the urgency of the message. And when the bass comes in, that just feels very good. That, that's the bottom and that catapults the song onward. And the the section after the second verse and chorus, I'm going to jump to that. That's where there would be a solo. That's a very melodic guitar line that's played, that really takes the role of the solo. There really is no solos on the crossing, as we know, but they have these melodic parts or instrumental sections where a part will be highlighted. uh, And uh, that part is just very lovely in this song. And uh, especially the end piece of that, that section, the transition after that melodic guitar section and before the verse sets in, that has a lovely dual guitar line that really spice up uh, a lot of things. I always loved it when Stuart and Bruce would play those two counterparts uh, just like that. That's, uh, that. that's really probably my instrumental highlight of the song, that little dual section at the end there. Uh, the verse that they go into right after that, Hold Me Through the Darkest Night, that, that stands out for its lovely choir of backing vocals on the words Darkest Night. So he's singing really about the darkest night, yet that gets the most glorious vocal delivery by that choir of backing vocals. And um, it is kind of 
uh, known that Stewart used to do his own backing vocals in the studio. It wasn't really normal back in those days that the others augmented him or did it, except when they played live, of course. But in that section, on uh, Darkest Night, it sounds like there are definitely more people involved than Stewart. And I'm wondering if this is the second song with an appearance by Christine Beveridge. I'm not sure. It's not super clear, but I, I suspect so. So, um, yeah, so that's a lovely thing. It, re- it really stands out. And I think it's, I don't know if it's meant to be used ironically, but it could be. Because The Darkest Night got the most glorious uh, delivery there. Uh, and one more thing. One thing you will discover if you listen very carefully to this song in headphones. And that really was a surprise when I first noticed this uh, some time ago. I really felt I knew this song well. But when I listened to it in headphones, the amount of Ebo in this song was really surprising. Uh, because it's not clear, and especially sort of this song sandwiched between really two of the strongest Ebo moments on the album in uh, Chance and The Storm. But this song really is quite brilliant in its use of Ebo because it's not used like it is anywhere else on the album. It's especially very prominent towards the, the end section. Well, that was just a very interesting discovery. So even though you think you know a track well, listen to it in headphones and uh, you probably will discover things you didn't know about. So that's pretty much this song. Uh, I have a quote from Tony where he says, a thousand stars. This song was written and demoed in my mom's front room in Ealing on my Fostex 4 track. It was a bus to take it into the studio and record it properly. What an original sounding song. Never heard the like since. The subject matter is still as relevant today as it was then. Now my only comment to those comments is that we know this song existed before Tony and Mark joined the band. So how written and demoed it was. It it was probably fleshed out in his mom's front room in Ealing. Uh, But uh, we know Flag of Nation existed. I have no doubt it was developed a bit more than that. But it probably fell together when all the four key members of the band were were intact so that's just my my thing it was probably put together and demoed more than written and demoed but anyway very cool awesome yeah it's uh this this is such a great live track i mean i'll never forget the first time i ever saw anything live related to big country was that barrelands show and i'll never forget hearing those drums kick in and seeing the band come out on stage in their plaid and their tartan headbands and the crowd going absolutely insane.
know if I've ever seen an opening to a concert that's as powerful as that one to me. I, I just so when they brought that song back uh, during the Mike years, as you mentioned, I was really pleased to hear that again, and they they did an amazing version of it as well. But yeah, lyrically, you cover everything very well. Um, nothing really too much to add other than a few personal preferences as to lyrics that I absolutely love. Um, I, I just love that. And I remember saying this on the first show. Uh, I love that line. It's time like never before. Only the Black Queen scores a card so high, high and so wild we should burn it. Now, I never looked at those lines necessarily as the people with the power saying that I, I often, I just looked at it as, you know, someone, someone saying that trying to, trying to tell people and raise awareness of nuclear war and the possibilities of what could happen. Like a, like a group of, of people saying, come in closer. We've got to understand. I, we've got to talk about this. We're playing our final hand as in not them personally, but the powers that be, but who knows? It could be that way. Um, the, the thing that I find so interesting is the Black Queen. And I, I did some searching to see, is there anything, is there anything to do with the Black Queen? Because I just love that, that image. And I thought I'd heard some things about, you know, Black Queens before. I know there's, um, well, there's a Queen song called March of the Black Queen, which is interesting. But one thing that I found is that the Black Queen, I'm reading this now, the Black Queen is an Eastern European folk villain a cruel but powerful female ruler, a shape-shifting master of black magic who commanded rain and threw her lovers over castle walls to their deaths, a woman dressed in black who walked with a raven by her side. She's the archetypal malevolent witch. So I, I, I must have heard some things about it before, but never really the specific tales that they're being talked about. But I, I'm, Stuart was so well-read, I'm, I'm having, I have to assume that maybe he knew about this, which is why he chose the black queen. Um, and I also mentioned the lyrics of the queen song, uh, the March of the black queen, the final, the final stanza of that song says, uh, forget your sing-alongs and your lullabies surrender to the city of the fireflies dance to the devil in beat with the band. But now it's time to be gone. La 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 forever, forever. Ah, ha ha. So, you know, that, <laughs> that definitely sounds like, uh, the same black queen that we're talking about here. And, it, and I just thought it was really interesting that he, that he labeled, you know, nuclear apocalypse with the black queen. And that's, and then, and then tying that into our final hand. Just brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant lyric writing. And again, I just, I just stunned, you know, that he was so young to have written this. Um, as you say, you have to look at this song in the context of the eighties and we were all afraid at the time. I mean, I'm kind of like you. I, I never really thought about it that intently because I was young, but yet I knew that it was there and I knew, you know, there was a pervading sense of menace that was always out there. And for us in America, it was always, you know, the Russians, are they going to strike first? And what are we going to do if they strike first? And should we strike first? There was always this kind of thing. And, you know, I live near Washington DC. So, you know, I was the same with Stuart. If anything ever happened, you know, we were going to be the first to go. Um, so, you know, it's always something in the back of your mind. And if you were older, you know, of a, of a certain age, like Stuart was here, and his, even though he was still young, he was in his 20s, it must have been even more of a, of a worry than someone who's just a kid. And it's got other things to think about. So a lot of people were writing about nuclear war and the potential of it and the disaster disastrous nature of it at the time but 
Stuart does it here in such a beautiful, poetic, non-cliched way. And so many of these lines, you know, bringing in the protect and survive thing in such a clever way. And then you're just the, the luck of a thousand stars. I mean, and that kind of takes us back to the boy's own feel that we get. You know, you, you look at the luck of the stars and shooting stars as as something that's a part of these old tales. And I remember one of the images, I think, from that they were using was like a these meteors falling from the sky. And I, I, that, that wasn't necessarily associated with a thousand stars, but in some ways there is a correlation there between those and shooting stars. And because in some ways that's what they are. Um, so, I'm sure that most of us try to map these images to specific songs. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, that would obviously be the one for this one. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, the apocalyptic raining down of these stars and, you know, they're not lucky stars anymore. Now they're just falling from the skies. And, and in a way, when you think about a nuclear missile flying through the air, that could look like a shooting star in a sense as well. So, yeah, all kinds of things. You can talk about this and you've talked about pretty much all of it. But I just wanted to bring in that Black Queen because I love that line so much. And I think that's, you know, potentially another interesting illusion that Stuart makes to literature that predated him and, and old folk tales and those types of things. So I think that's a cool element to the song. Um, musically, I mean, you covered that very well too. I'm not going to touch on a lot more than what you already said, but uh, one thing I will say that I find very interesting when you look at this song and how it developed, um, they always seemed, they seem to have a lot of trouble figuring out what to do musically in the chorus in the luck of a thousand stars. If you listen to a lot of these demos, and there are there are a number of different demos for a thousand stars as as the song progressed, you know, starting with with the, those parts from Flag of Nations that you mentioned, and and I always loved that bass part, so that's why I always had a soft spot for Flag of Nations. I know people give that song a lot of grief, but I just love that little bouncy bass part that that made its way to a thousand stars. I think it's great, and I love that in in Flag of Nations. But when you listen to how this song developed demo wise. Like I said, they never seem to know what to play underneath the chorus when they get to the luck of a thousand stars can't get me out of this. In some of the early demos, there was a little bit of like music underneath that part. then it kind of turned into there was no music at all underneath that part they just went to chicka 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 on the guitars it was like a muting the guitar strings where you're making a percussive rhythmic type of thing with the guitars And this is what Steve Lillywhite turned it into. So Steve Lillywhite added a, a more melodic feel to that chorus. Uh, and again, you know, I'm assuming it was him. I'm sure the band had input into this as well. But 
it, it almost always struck me that as, as you hear how this song progressed, it's always struck me that they weren't really sure what to do underneath that chorus. And I think what they ended up with on the final version is perfect because you get like a nice mixture of that percussive thing. But then they add like, after he says, can't get me out of this, they add like a nice little bass run that kind of goes flutters up into the air and then some guitar chords that it hit and kind of cascade uh, and over the rest of the, the chorus. And it's subtle, but it's, it works. And to me, it works a lot better than just having that percussive thing going throughout. So I, I love that. I think that's a great addition to the song. Um, as you say, I love that line, hold me through the darkest night. I feel secure in your arms while the city's on fire. It's kind of like this feeling of, you know, let just let it burn. Yeah. And there's always been something romantic in, in movies and things I've seen where, you know, people see the, the bomb coming and there's nothing they can do. They know now that it's too late. Here it's, here it comes. And so they just put their arms around each other and they just stare into the sky as it comes down and obliterates everyone. <laughs> and it's like, and it, it does, it brings you back to what's really important, what you love the most. And uh, even though the whole city's on fire and I like that, that line is not between you and me, but we are losing. That's always, that's always been kind of a difficult line for me. It's, it's, it's a, uh, you know, just kind of a strange sounding line, but you know, I guess what he's saying there is we as a human race are losing you and me here we are together, but you know, humanity is, is done. So again, we've got sort of like chance. We've got this rousing song that people are jumping around like crazy to pumping their fists to as well. They should, because the music inspires you to do that. But we've got a song that really offers no hope. <laughs> Once again, it's laying out the, the dangers of what's going to happen or what could happen. Um, and I guess, I guess the one thing you could say about this song is that it hasn't happened yet within the context of the song. So it's, it's more a dire warning of what could happen. And I always took the, uh, the opening line as being like this, this prophet who comes into a town or something and is, explaining to them what's what could happen you know, gathering everyone closer come come you know let <laughs> it's it's there's a huge danger here and this is what it is so yeah a, a brilliant song uh lyrically musically it's got everything about big country that we love you know the big drums the tom patterns the the bagpipe sounding guitars the the feeling like you want to rush into battle you know to this music and and go on the Highland Charge, which we'll talk about in the next song. But um, yeah, that that's yeah. it for me. I, I can't add anything else to it. So uh, I think I think it's all been covered. One of one of their best live tracks for sure, and a great track on yeah, this on this album. Sensational! It started a long and proud tradition of uh, really charging along to uh, the soundtrack of Destruction of Mankind. <laughs> That's we right. Have, uh, all, all Go Together is another one in the same category. That's more environmental, but it's really the same thing. Exactly. Shot! So where do you rank? Thousand Stars gets number six. Cool. We're only two, two spots removed again. It's my number four. Yeah. Nice. This is my highest uh, one so far. The three first were all eight, nine, and ten. <laughs> so it's about time we got up here. Yeah, really. Nice. All right. So that is uh, six for me. It's four for you. And it's time to look at the people's jury. 
And as we remember from the last song, they were not that hot on chance. It's even worse on Thousand Stars. That's worse than any of us uh, gave it. The people place it number nine with uh, 525 points out of the possible 800 or minimum 80, really. It should shoot for the 80, not for the 800, to make it clear. But it's uh, it's lower. It's average is 6.5, which is quite low. That you have to have a lot of low votes to uh, to end up there. Three people placed Thousand Star at number one. And Andy Inkster, one of our bogans, is one of them. And he campaigned for Thousand Star. He, he drew signs, and he walked around on the groups saying... Come on, the luck of the thousand stars will see us through. But sadly, it didn't. <laughs> that would make sense. How did it make sense? Because his name is Thousand Stars on YouTube. All right. I didn't think of that. Well, well, well picked up. Yeah, so he was one of the three who rated it number one. But 12 people placed it last. And that will place it low. And that's where it ended up. All right. So thousand stars, karate bark count. Let's get it. Get out of the cage. Let's go. Here he comes again. Filth. Crossing the Roddy Bar Countdown. One. I knew there had to be at least one. But, you know, live when when he did it, there were tons of them. But every song got so many of them. I think even Chance got some karate barks before he goes into one of the latter choruses. Yeah, it could be. I, th- I think I think I you know it became a thing. I think it was less established when they recorded the album, but man, did they uh, embrace that one? And that's cool, you know. That's our thing, that's right? Hi, Tom's fine. How you doing? It's Paul Barker here. Um, the storm is my favorite track off the crossing. Uh, certainly, when it came out, it's the big time of tensions and cold war between the east and the west and um to me just represented all i felt needed to be said and expressed about that whole issue and conflict just being ever hopeful and positive about peace and i kind of just have my own image of what the video tweet might look like if it was ever released and it was just great that Stuart and the rest of the bank could just fire that imagination so much um and yeah i originally had a blue cassette edition of the crossing uh, with the extra tracks on heart and soul angle park 12 weeks feels fine in a big country then um in 1996 when the red german remaster came out um, that of course had the extra track the crossing on two which i kind of love as much as the storm in its own way although it's not one ten core songs and yeah the, the, i've now got the green cover deluxe edition too of course, um, with all those extra tracks on, which is absolutely brilliant. But yeah, Storm of Thrones as well. It was absolutely amazing, inspired interpretation by you, Tom. Uh, I love that piece of music so much. Every time I hear the Storm li- live, it still sends massive shivers down the spine. It's not lost any of its magic and sparkle to me. It's just um, so polished, so brilliant. It's got lovely interludes and overlays in terms of Christine and the vocals as well, um, which just makes it extra special. Um, so have it, you guys. Thanks for doing such a brilliant job. And, uh, yeah, look forward to hearing the further deep dives. Bye for now. Bye. The next track is, is The Storm, which we actually, uh, track five, rather, is The Storm. This song was, was recorded on the, the first album, The Crossing, and we actually recorded this song acoustically and then for many years when we played it live on stage 
we actually played it with uh, with electric guitars, and uh, it was cool for us to go back and uh, and play it acoustically again. And I, I think the crowd really got got a big surprise when we uh, kind of dusted it off and, and brought it out to play acoustically. We had a whole backdrop that went with the song as well. We did, yes, that's Moving right. Moving clouds and lightning. lightning what I like about this version of Storm, it works without Ebos, which everybody thought was a, one of the things that we used to do on guitar. Ah, but people used to think we used Ebos all the time and we only used it on about three or four different tracks. But people used to think the guitar sound was the Ebo. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> it, was, it was us singing. It was, <laughs> us, it was us making Spike Mulligan noises. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, the song I've been dreading a little bit, not because I don't like the song, but because it's just so huge. The song is so huge, and it really forced me to have to do what I hate, which is research. (laughs) I'm sitting here with popcorn. Oh, man. I really had to do research for this song, because I'd heard for years what it referenced, and, and, uh, you know, I knew sort of what what it was about, but I didn't know enough where I could speak about it coherently and i don't know if i can do that now but i'm going to try i certainly can do a a better job than i could have uh a few months ago so so anyway so now i've ruined everything instead of pretending that i just knew all this information now it's going to be obvious that i just learned it fairly recently but um Oh, this is good. Now you have built the audience sympathy instead. So this is uh (laughs) this is very good. It's a good approach. Well look i've i've never been one to uh claim that i had uh, any kind of serious knowledge of Scottish history. So those of you who do, especially my Scottish friends, if I mess up on any of this, I'm sure you'll let me know. And I apologize in advance because uh, they didn't teach this in American schools. So I, di- I don't know it. But uh, I've come to come to learn a lot about it. And uh, I, I love it. And uh, we'll see how good I get with, with these descriptions. So anyway, the storm. Um Lyrically, musically, this is an epic. I mean, this is the first big country epic that we get from them. And, uh, you know, what is a big country epic? I mean, we could argue that some songs are epics and some, some people might disagree on some levels. But with The Storm, with Poro Man, with other songs that we've talked about, there's, there are some songs that are just known. This is a big country epic. You know, The Crossing. What what makes it epic? Well, I think 
number one, it's just a, it's a song that goes through many different changes. Those aren't just, they can be lyrical changes, uh, definitely, but also musical changes. I mean, uh, a song that's probably over five minutes, I would say, would, would, would categorize it as an epic. That doesn't mean a song that is over five minutes is automatically an epic by any stretch, but I think you've got to at least have some of that length in there to account for some of these changes. It's interesting. For example, you know, the Red Fox has a lot of these different dynamic feel changes, but I don't think anyone would call that an epic necessarily because it's not long enough. But yet it's got a lot of the ingredients of being an epic because it's got completely different shifting um, dynamics in the song and, and, you know, from a musical and a lyrical perspective. But anyway, the storm is definitely a big country epic. It's one of those tracks that, uh, you know, it's just a gigantic prog rock almost type of song in a lot of ways. It's got the prog elements definitely that, uh, Tony and Mark brought to the band. But before I talk about it musically, plenty to talk about there. Got to talk about it lyrically. And, this is another one of those, you know, boy's own adventure type songs to be sure, but it's also heavily rooted in Scottish history. And the key for that is with the line, the line, ah, my James. I remember listening to this as a kid. I had no idea who James was. I didn't know what he was referencing there. I just assumed it was, you know, a friend of his named James who was with him when he was talking about this uh, awful scene he was witnessing of these cities being burned and, you know, destroyed. Um, so I just thought it was his friend named James and that worked for me. I thought that made it a little bit more personal and, and, you know, somehow set this stage of this character protagonist in the song being, uh, being with his friend and they're seeing this awful thing happen. But later I came to learn that the James being referenced here was King James. Uh, the James who, you know, this song being about the, that what we would call the Jacobite uprisings in Scottish history. Now, many people, when they hear that the storm is, is referencing the Jacobite uprisings in Scottish history, their first comment would of course be, well, obviously, obviously we knew that. And their second comment would be, what are the Jacobite uprisings of Scottish history? <laughs> That's me, at least. <laughs> so, you know, I did some research on it. And some of the stuff I knew, you know, sort of a little bit about, but I had to really, you know, bone up on this. So just a brief history lesson. And it's not like the song demands that you know all this stuff, but it really puts the song in a new light when you when you see the historical framework that it's built in and it's got a lot of other things too that 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 speak to the things Stuart was writing about during these early days of big country in the first few albums just the sense of scottish nationalism and um you know if that's the right word but pride in scottish traditions but also this this whole you know feeling of wanting to move forward while maintaining the past and and having a love and a rooting in the past. And, you know, we kind of got that with Eileen on as well, where he had said about that song that he didn't want to stay um, tethered to the past, but he wanted to have a connection to it, but also move toward the future. I think we get some of that in the storm a little bit. But 
Let's set the stage for this. Uh, first of all, the, these lyrics. I came from the hills with a tear in my eye. The winter closed in. I came from the hills with a tear in my eye. The winter closed in and the crows filled the sky. The houses were burning and flames going red. The people were running with eyes full of dead. So we've got this guy coming down from the hills with a tear in his eye already. We don't know if it was there before or if it's there because of what he's witnessing. I'm going to hypothesize that it was there before, and I'll explain why here in a moment. But he's coming upon this scene of villages being burned and raided and, and pillaged and people running around with eyes full of dread and, you know, people assuming that they're maybe... Maybe these people are being killed. You know, what's happening here? This is obviously some sort of raid on this village. So to understand why this would have happened, we've got to, we've got to have a little bit of historical context here. So again, going back to the, ah, my James, they didn't have to do this. And James being, uh, James, James the second, actually, who was at one point the king of Scotland, England, and even Ireland. He was um, he he was said to have abdicated his fr- his throne back in the mid 1600s, and one of the reasons for that is that he was a Catholic in a very Protestant uh, government in England at the time, and he converted to Catholicism. And now that that conversion was sort of uh, allowed by the other Protestants in the government because he had no he had no Catholic heirs who would who would become. Catholics and make that Catholicism more threatening to the Protestant structure that was already in place. He had a daughter, um, but he had no, no sons until he had a son also named James, James the third. Once he had this son, then the Protestants and the government started to worry because they thought, okay, this guy has Catholic leanings because he's a Catholic. We've, we've sort of, you know, brushed this under the rug, but now he's got a son who's born Catholic. So when he dies, the son is going to be the king, and we're looking at Catholicism spreading through England. Um, and and so a variety of things happened. Um, James left the throne. He fled to France, and the Protestants in power said that he had abdicated the throne, which gave them the right to put his daughter into the throne position as the queen. And her being a Protestant, she was a Protestant ruler. Um, so he did that. And uh, she had a husband named William, and he became the king. So there were a lot of people who did not like this, obviously. They wanted James returned to the throne. And for a long time, um, they tried to do this over a series of what they called the Jacobite uprisings. Now, Jacobite is Latin for Jacobus, which means James. So when you hear Jacobite, that means someone who is uh, in support of James, King James, wanting to return him to the throne. So... This this King James, King James II of England, died um, before he could be restored to power. Even though there were battles and things that were fought to try to do to try to bring this about that weren't successful. And the, th- the same thing happened with his son, the other James. And at one point, this son, James III, was exiled, and he had a son who many people know as they call him Bonnie Prince Charlie, Charles Edward Stuart. 
And another interesting thing here is that James was from the house of Stuart. So this is what takes us into the time period of what's happening in the lyrics of the storm, because uh, Bonnie Prince Charles led what was the last Jacobite uprising, and it was defeated, it was crushed, and it was the last one that really had any merit and that had any um, success whatsoever. And after that, it w- there were no more no more of these. And the attempts at restoring the House of Stuart and James back to the throne were were gone. So what what this what happened around this time? And this happened in like uh, the last one. I think was um, let me get my notes here. Uh, 1746. And a lot of people talk about this big battle that happened as being what the lyrics of the storm are referencing. And that is the battle of Culloden. And this was the final battle in Scotland between the Jacobite forces and the English forces. And the defeat was so great that, uh, as I just said, the Jacobites were pretty much destroyed and any attempts, any further attempts to, restored the house of Stuart to the throne were, were defeated. Um, now what happened here is that the forces of Prince Charles, Bonnie Prince Charles, um, he had developed a great deal of support in Scotland. Part of that is because, um, King James before him had been very sympathetic to the Scottish way of life, the, the way of life of the Highlanders and their clan system, which was very different to the system happening in England. I mean, they they had their own way of life. They had their own traditions. And James had been sympathetic to that. So there was a sense, and what Charles was sort of promising to these people in the Highlands was that if he won, and if James was was restored to the throne, and the House of Stuart was restored to the, the English throne, that this could lead to an independent Scotland. So he had a lot of support in Scotland. He had a lot of support among the Highlanders. And um, what I learned by also reading it, more about this is that he also had a lot of support among what they call the Lowlanders as well. Um, so this is where he drew his army from. But he also had uh, French support. He had support from other English people as well. And I'm trying to do this as quickly as I can, but it does lead into, I think, a good framework for the Storm's lyrics. So uh, Charles led these forces. And they still were not forces that were really up to the task of fighting England, but yet he had some, some success. He actually led them into England, which had not happened before. And they had some success taking some cities, making some, uh, some inroads into, you know, the battle. And people were, were very excited about these successes. But at one point they had to retreat back to Scotland and sort of regain their, their power and re-strengthen their forces. And the British, though, pursued them under uh, the the direction of the Duke of Cumberland. They pursued them into Scotland. And they all met, finally, at this big battle on the Moors of Culloden. And, of course, you know, we get references to Moors in the song, The the Storm. And uh, that was a big deal here because the Jacobite forces ended up fighting and choose there were there was advice given to Prince Charles to Charles to not fight here because the ground of the Moors, they said, was not conducive to what was known as the Highland Charge, which was the the main method the Highlanders used in their battles. So they had this big, imposing, huge charge that they would make, 
and it was usually overwhelming to the enemy when they when they won their their victories that's what why because the, their charge was so overwhelming and difficult to stop but they chose to fight on these moors and um the ground was kind of soggy and marshy and it wasn't really conducive to these charges that they that they used you know so often in their in their battles and to make a long story short they were defeated resoundingly at Culloden. I mean, they were, there were thousands of Jacobites who were killed. And I think the numbers for the English were less than a hundred who were killed or certainly in the lower hundreds. And, um, it was a, it was a bitter defeat for them. And Charles escaped. He fled and the other Jacobite forces who were left, um, sort of stumbled back into the areas of where they lived. And after that time, you know, the British forces and the English forces, they didn't just say, okay, we won, we're going back to England. But the uh, the monarchy in England declared, this is the time now, we've got them on the run, we have to do something about this so that this doesn't happen again. So there was all kinds of, there were all kinds of laws that were established that were designed to basically destroy and, you know, hamper this Scottish Highlander culture that we had seen um, that people had been so proud of and cities were, were burned. People who were, were uh, supportive of the Jacobites, their cities were burned. Their women were raped. Their families were killed. Um, the English forces went through and, and did a lot of that. They pillaged a lot of cities. They burned down a lot of cities. They, anyone who was supporting the Jacobites, they made an example of them. They went through the, the fields of the battle even and the wounded soldiers there they killed, they killed all of them. They didn't have, they didn't leave them any, they didn't give them any mercy. The, uh, response to this defeat from the, from the English was, was pretty brutal. I mean, they, they made laws that tartan could not be worn anymore unless, um, in special circumstances regarding the armies. Um, bagpipes could not be played. They made laws that, that destroyed the clan system. Um, there was a whole situation where, the swords of, of, of these villagers had to be surrendered to, uh, the English authorities. Uh, English troops were stationed in lands that were no longer, that were once controlled by Highlanders and, and th these clans and clan chiefs. So it was a really terrible defeat for people who were hoping for a, an independent Scotland. And it was just another one in many that we've seen throughout Scottish history and, and, its relationship to to England. So a lot of people have talked about the lyrics of the storm being about the Battle of Culloden. I, I think it's more the aftermath. And I think we have to see that with these first opening lines. You know, I came from the hills with a tear in my eye. Why would this person have a tear in his eye already? My assumption here is that it's because he was part of the battle. And, you know, he's coming back down from the hills, maybe a couple weeks later or, or days later. And he's knows that, you know, it's, it's his, the forces that he fought for have been defeated. Now he's coming down and seeing, wow, now the English are even destroying these, our cities. They're destroying our towns. They're destroying our villages, destroying his home. They was coming back to it's being burned to the ground. And that elicits this claim. Ah, my James, they didn't have to do this. You know, he's talking to, to the James that he was fighting for. And being the English, they didn't have to go this far. They didn't have to kill, you know, they didn't have to destroy our villages and kill our people and kill these civilians. 
So then we get to the next verse. Now, this is where people could talk about, well, this this is the battle. This is the battle that he's talking about. I don't know. I mean, I, I would say this, again, this this was more the aftermath. And maybe his group that came down from the hills in in dejection and in defeat and saw this scene, they chased after the ones who had done it. And maybe it was just a small English garrison who had done this. It wasn't like they were chasing the, the full force of the English army at this point. But uh, they chased them. They 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 chased them through the forest, through the moors, um, and then this big storm broke upon them. Now now there was a storm that happened um, during the Battle of Culloden. There there's writings of people who experienced it, and they said it was raining and it was sleeting. And to make matters worse for the people who were fighting on the Jacobite side, the wind was blowing all that stuff into their face apparently during this battle. So it was making it even more difficult for them to mount these charges that they that they had made and you know if anyone's more interested in the specifics of that battle then you know don't look to me to tell you I'm, I'm just trying kind of learning it and trying to relate the little that I know but but I did read a lot about it and it's very interesting you know from a from a strategic situation so definitely go look for that the battle of Culloden if you want to know more about it there's all kinds of stuff written about it and it's a huge a huge thing in Scottish history. So it's, it's something that's very interesting, but I feel like the storm in this song and in these lyrics is more of a metaphor. Um, yes, it's literal. The storm broke upon us with fury and flame and this huge rainstorm happens um, as they're trying to get some sort of revenge for what's been done to their village. Um, and I, I like this line, you know, both hunters and hunted washed out in the rain. The storm is affecting both of them equally. And I think that's important to the metaphorical nature of the storm that we'll, that we'll see in a little bit. Um, the storm has no, it doesn't care what side you're on. It's, it's washing them both out in the rain. It's affecting them both equally. Uh, so I'm going to skip the course for a minute and get back to the next verse that comes in. say again, well, this is the aftermath of the Battle of Culloden, but I, I get the feeling that who, whatever happened in this battle, um, the people, the, the protagonists in this song, it feels like they had some sort of a victory, which was not the case in Culloden. Because otherwise, why would they even, why would there even be a reason for them to smile? So this is how I'm taking it, okay? And I, I'm totally granting that I, I could be wrong and everyone could have a different impression. But my take on this is that the people who came down from the hills and saw the burning of their villages went out to get revenge on those who did it. And they were able to sort of do that. They were able to find them. They were able to chase them down. They were able to kill some of them. They were able to maybe defeat them in that tiny skirmish. And so that was a victory, but there was, you would say, well, they would smile about that, but no, that nobody's smiling about it because other people were dead. Many people had died in this, much bigger battle, which and much more meaningful battle that just happened in Culloden. And so while they might have 
struck a little blow there of revenge to what had just happened on a smaller scale. On a larger scale, nobody's going to smile. They're, they're taking their, their dead back. They're taking their wounded back. And in warfare in that time, there was a tradition, um, even though it wasn't really followed apparently in, in this battle of Culloden, because like I said, the English went through the battlefields and, and killed the wounded. Um, but there was a tr- tradition back then that after the battle was over, both sides would allow the other side to come take their wounded, take their dead and, and bring them back. And that's how, that's what I gather from when he's saying we took back our own. They're going back to get those who, who fell, who were wounded, who died. Um, and nobody smiled when we knew what was lost. There's no reason to smile. E- even if this skirmish that just happened succeeded, there's, there's no reason to smile about anything because they knew what they've lost and they don't even know if it was worth it yet. They know well enough. Only time proves the cost. Will, will time be kind to this effort? You know, will time show that it was worth it to lose these people or will it show us that it was just a waste? And I think what we see in this song as it lyrically continues is that the guy is saying it, it, it was a waste. It is a waste because he's saying in the chorus leading up or the verses leading up to the chorus, if you can call it a chorus, it's a very strange thing to call a chorus in this song. Um, but it is repeated a couple times as a chorus would be. But he says, I know I could never return to the time of hope when I was born. was the time of hope we don't really know but maybe it was a time when he felt this sense of uh you know hope for what scotland could become and and this independent scotland and maybe all those hopes that he had as a child had led to him being willing to fight for that cause in these battles and in these jacobite uprisings but now he knows he can never return to that and and with the defeat at culloden especially it's over you know they're not going to have this chance anytime soon again but he's not just he's not just falling into hate in those lines um or into like i will regroup and we will fight again he, it's almost like he's discovering like there's got to be something different than this war because as i said these these uprisings had happened over the course of almost 100 years and even before that you know that it's been happening and he says let the strength of peace run through my hands maybe there's something else that i can be fighting for in the future and and not not just this endless cycle of war but something that will bring about peace um and then he says which i think are the key moments of the song and where i think the storm becomes a big metaphor for war and for just this constant struggle between religious you know that like i said this all stem from religious struggle protestant versus catholic and this side versus that side and and you know we obviously continue to see it repeated over and over and over and over again today in so many different areas of the world and here he's saying when we walk away from the storm's roar then i will be afraid no more and now i'm sure of where i stand let the strength of peace run through this land you might say well that's a weird thing to say for someone who's just experienced 
this awful defeat, you know, is he, and, and seeing these, if we look at this through the prism of, of that time period and those battles and the Jacobite uprising, that's kind of an odd say, thing for someone to say, let the strength of peace run through this land where there's not going to be peace really for a lot of the people who fought this, as we've just talked about, that's going to be a lot of retribution. So I, I always took this as this person coming to the conclusion that this war and this mentality that leads to these wars, we have to walk away from it. We have to learn to walk away from it. We have to figure out how to get away from it. When we can do that from the roar of the storm, which to me is that whole war mentality. And it's not like saying that any war is useless because obviously we've seen through society that sometimes it has to be done, you know, but in these cases where they just seem so, you know, can't, they just seem so pointless and, and so useless and started from such ridiculous, uh, re- for such ridiculous reasons and reasons like religion and, and things like this, which could be avoided. It seems like the, the person in the song is singing not just to that time period, but to our time period now, to all time periods. When we can walk away from this, then there'll, then fear will recede. The reason to, to be afraid of these things will, will recede and, this person is saying, now I'm sure of where I stand. I've got to, I've got to figure out a way to bring about peace. Um, not this endless cycle of war where one side will win and the other side will win. And then the other side will come back and win. And then the other side will come back and win. But this, this, they've got to get to a point where both sides can come together and find a peace that can work for both sides. And I like how he uses the word strength of peace. Because that, I think, is very telling as well. It's it's not like this, oh, we've got to, we shouldn't fight. You know, we've got to have peace. It's not like this weak peace. It's, it's strength. And it does take strength. It takes mental strength to figure out something that uh, works where both sides can come to this agreement where they can they can have this peace that runs through a land where people can have their traditions on one side and and accept traditions on another and as we've seen in society i mean and in today it's it's yeah it's a strength that most people can never attain and the and the humanity has not yet attained but i really take the storm in this song as being that metaphor for war uh something that this mentality where that perpetuates the cycle of war and perpetuates the cycle of pain from generation to generation. Um, and it's, it's, it is a weak weakness. This, this, this mentality is based on weakness. It's based on mental weakness. It's based on weakness from, from an intelligence standpoint. It's because it's so easy and it's so weak to just immediately go that route, go the violent route in, in these situations. Um, the real strength comes in trying to find that peace, trying to, trying to be that peacemaker, you know, whether it's someone like Martin Luther King or uh, countless other people that we've seen throughout history who have been nonviolent, but yet have been incredibly strong. And we've seen that strength that, that comes from them. So I take this song. Yes, it's rooted in this Scottish history. There's no doubt about it. It's rooted in this period. But it's also a great example of what Stuart was saying in I Lead On, where it can be rooted in that. But we've got to get beyond that. We, we've got to get beyond 
we've got to wipe our eyes of these misty years and see the future through. And this is a great example of it. We've got to see what happened here and learn to, you know, this is just another example of how these things don't work out and they just lead to more violence, more pain. And the real strength is finding a path to a peace that can benefit both. So that's, it's a gigantic song. Uh, I could keep going on and on about it, but that's how I feel about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, lyrically, there's so much going on in the song, but I think, I think it really is something that relates to us now, as well as to this, you know, small time period in which it was written. The one thing I'll say that's interesting to me lyrically when you compare this to the demo, there's another song where there are a couple of changes lyrically in the final version. And one I think is is a good change, and one I, I actually prefer the original, and I'll start with that one first. In the original demo, Stewart says, We chased them for miles. I had hate in my eyes. And in, in the final version, he changed that to, I had tears in my eyes. And why I prefer hate in the original song, I, and I, I have my suspicions about why Stewart changed it. Namely, hate is such a strong thing. And if you're looking at hate for the English who perpetuated this burning of the village, you know, maybe he didn't want that to be such a strong emotion there. Because, I mean, that, that problem is still something that's, you know, still there in a lot of respects. It also counters what he says in the sort of mid-verse bridge thing, where he he wants to get away from the hate and into peace. Right, right. Yet he has yet he has just charged with hate some verses before in the demo. So, <laughs> right, exactly. And but I think I think that still works for me though because it shows his his evolution. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to yeah. think that he would have hate when he comes down from the hills and sees this this scene. Um. And he would charge, you know, with hate because he wants revenge. But we see how he later in the song, he overcomes that. He realizes that that hate is not the path that should be influencing what you do. It's got to be the strength of peace. But the other reason that I don't like it as much is that we've got a tear in his eye when he comes down from the hills. And then he's got tears in his eyes when he's chasing them. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, he's a tearful sap. Yeah, he? he's crying again, you know, but uh, it's more understandable. But so I, I kind of prefer the hate there, even though I understand why he changed it. I, but I think it works better lyrically. Um, the other line that he changed, which I, I like better, is uh, the storm. In the original demo, he says, the storm broke upon us with fury and flame. Both horses and masters bogged down in the rain. The storm broke upon us with fury and flame. Both horses and masters bogged down in the rain. And then he changed that to both hunters and hunted washed out in the rain. A much better line to me. Um, both horses and masters bogged down in the rain seems kind of pedestrian, seems kind of generic and seems to more relate to the battle that this whole thing sprang from. Because, you know, as I said, the, the, the murkiness and the bogginess of the moors made it difficult for the foot soldiers to charge. And I'm sure the, 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 anyone who's on horseback as well. But when you change that to both hunters and hunted washed out in the rain, that lends back more to the whole metaphor thing of, of how the storm is just doesn't care who you are. You're going to be involved in this. You're going to, you're going to face the brunt of it. So it doesn't matter if you were hunting, if it doesn't matter if you were the hunted, you're both washed out. I think that's a very powerful line and that was a good change. Um, so 
there it is lyrically, uh, musically. Um, I'm going to try not to spend nearly as much time on it musically, but there's, I certainly could. Musically, we get the epic Ebo. I mean, this is where the Ebo takes the spotlight and shines. And let me just say from the outset, even though I totally get what Steve Lillywhite did with this song, and then he, you know, I understand why he did it um, as far as the layering of this track on the crossing and all the different instrumentation that we have on it. Um, I prefer a lot of uh, things about the demo version and the live version, especially to me, the live version of the song is more powerful. And, th- and this song musically just didn't, it was very difficult for me to, to get into uh, when I first heard this album um, lyrically too, because I didn't really understand necessarily what it was about. Um, I had some idea, but it was, it was far less than what I already related here as far as my current lyrical interpretations. But this song for me was, was very difficult for me to absorb, I guess, in a lot of respects. Um, and I still feel like the live version is the most powerful version, but you know, we, we've got the epic Ebo intro, which was always an incredible thing live as well, because Stuart would usually go nuts on that, um, when he would do that. And you would have the storm, the lightning flashing in the background on stage and the crossing tour. And it was just fantastic. But this is where the Ebo really takes front and center stage. I mean, uh, yeah, when I, when I heard this, even though I mentioned here, having heard the Ebo before on different songs, it was never like this. So I, I really wasn't sure what this was. And, and it was very interesting. I, I remember thinking at the time, I didn't know it was a guitar. I thought maybe it was some weird effect on a violin or something, but it really works. Um, and then pairing that with Christine Beveridge singing where she really stands out on this track and her beautiful ethereal voice and the harmonies in her voice, um, just gorgeous. So it's an incredible opening for a song already. And you know, something different is, is happening here. This is not going to be like any of the songs we've heard previously. It's going to be something bigger about this song where, where it loses me a little bit from a power standpoint is when the song kicks in, um, with the acoustic guitars and Mark's brush drumming. Um, I might not feel this way if they had done it this way live, but hearing, hearing that great riff live and even on the demo, which is much more of a punky, rough, uh, harder edged version of the song without a lot of the parts that finally, that made the crossing. I, I love it. I just love that. Da, 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 da. That's incredible. It's got like ties into the old West in America. It's got kind of an old West feel to it. And yet it's got a very Scottish feel to it. And, um, you know, it's just powerful, man. It gets your fists going. And it doesn't do that as much for me on the, on the album version with the acoustics. Cause I can't, I can't make out that riff as much. And Mark's drumming is more muted. And again, I totally get why he did that on the album version. It works in a lot of respects. But I don't think it's as powerful as the live version. Um, but, you know, it's still, it's, it's a really, it's one of those songs where I see, I think Lily White really went to town and the whole band went to town on this 
this out, this track because there's so much going on. You got the Ebo, you've got electric guitars, you've got acoustic guitars. Um, you've got all these strange changes as well in the song. When we get to what we call the chorus, I know I could never return to the time of hope when I was born and then on into let the strength of peace run through this land. Really, really interesting part. And these parts weren't on the demo. The, the demo is a very short, far from an epic type of song. So they really, really altered that quite a bit. The demo was, was a rough little gritty, uh, punky, skids-like song. Uh, the lyrics were generally the same, except for the ones that I mentioned. But they didn't have these sections that they added later. And these sections really make the song into something far more than what that demo was and and really elevate it along with the production into something that has that more grand epic scale. And I used to try to figure out I still I'm still not sure what the chord what the chords are for some of these parts in that chorus, especially like when we walk away from the storm's roar roar. There's like this very strange um mixing of the bass part and the guitar chords that are ringing throughout that part are very strange. I don't really know exactly what they are. I can't figure out really the root notes of what are what's being played there. It's one of the weirdest parts of a song I think that Big Country has ever done. But it works. It really does work. I mean, it's 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 got a dreamlike quality to it, which I think adds to my own interpretation of the lyrics where I say that this portion is where the speaker is speaking beyond time, not just this moment that he's talking about happening, but into the future. And I think that it has this very futuristic, proggy feel to it in that chorus. So I really like that, but it's very hard for me to... to make out exactly what's being played there uh the ah my james they didn't have to do this part that's repeated over and over throughout the song that's always been one of my favorites i mean it's it's such a plaintive cry and uh it's such an emotional part especially when they do it live um you know and the drums hit that that part and everybody's pumping their fist in that part and it's, it's a very very powerful powerful moment in the song both live and on record it's it's just a tour de force in a lot of ways. My only issues with it on the album version are that I don't feel it's nearly as powerful live. And I know that's probably going to be the case when you're reducing it to the acoustic treatment and you're giving it more layers. That often happens. And I, I'm not going to sit here and say it was the wrong choice because I know there are people who love this uh, this approach and for them it works perfectly. But for me... The, the demo version, if they could have, if they could have made a marriage between the rawness and the grittiness of the demo version with the album version and the live version, <laughs> that would have been perfect. You know, keep, keep more of the strength of the live version and the demo version and, uh, add these other parts without, without reducing that strength. I think that would have been perfect. But, you know, we do get some incredible bass playing. We, and the, the great thing about this song, you know, one of the many great things about this song is we've got another classic big country outro that is just stunning. You know, when Mark goes into the odd time signature of the, of the drums at the end. 
hear Christine Beveridge singing, you know, those those parts at the end as if she's an an angel coming down like a like an avenging angel almost onto the battlefield. And, you know, you, you hear how that just fades out and it's initially in, or at the end, it's it's just initially it's everything. And then at the end, it's just that voice and those drums. That is so powerful. And that is so ghostly and, and spine tingling. Um, and it leaves you kind of breathless as it ends. So, yeah, I mean, great lead playing throughout. Great, great, you know, big lead lines that come through. They're very uh, vicious when they do hit. And again, live, I think they're they're far stronger. But this is just a gigantic song. This is a storm of a song. And, um, you know, it, it's it's an amazing piece of work by the band and, you know, a, a big crowning achievement for the band, I think in a lot of respects and uh, a great start to the big country epic that we would all come to know and love. So that was like an epic dissection and I'm happy to be finished with it. <laughs> I took my temperature before you started and I took it again now. And I have, my my fever has increased by 0.5 degrees. <laughs> so either so either this was one heck of a dis- dissection and it impacted me greatly, or or I'm going down. So before I'm all the way at the bottom, I'll just hurry through mine. That was quite um, quite a good coverage of the historic elements. In fact, so good that I probably won't even look at the song from that element because that was uh, you know I, I can't add a, a shiver of thing to it. So, uh, yeah, I'll start more from a personal perspective. And that is uh, really when I heard The Storm for the first time, I can quite honestly say I had never heard a song like it. And I had rarely been affected by a song like I was affected by this one. So uh, so I mentioned that Chance was the song that really grabbed my attention and uh, drew me in to explore more. And with that attention grabbed, other songs like... Uh, yeah, Harvest Home and a couple others really snared me in and said, this band has something really unique here. But it was the storm that really made me fall in love with this band. And I think this song is a masterpiece, which is a word I rarely bandy about. But the storm to me is a masterpiece. It's a very epic song with such an incredible scope. And you mentioned progressive. I think that's a good word. It's It's definitely epic. But it's progressive also in the way that it goes through multiple musical changes. So it taps into the Celtic music in a big way. And also British folk with its strong acoustic storytelling approach. And also lyrically in the way it describes seeming historic events, which you covered extremely well. Uh, And some of the most hauntingly beautiful passages in music that I have ever heard. And that floors me to this day. Uh, this song never became stale in that regard. This song has so much, so many multiple changes in dynamics. And the Ebo is just <laughs> incredible. It's so huge, so huge. And such a almost mythical story hidden within, even though you know what it's about. It's uh, there, There's something in it that uh, you can look at it from so many angles. So as, as gorgeous as the uh, opening to chances, this one goes far beyond anything else. The moment that intro comes on, I get chills. And those Evo playing um, in harmony sound, it's just so lovely. It's just several parts of Evo playing together in harmony. And that's, uh, that, that is a new one, a new aspect. 
And then you have Christine Beveridge's moment on the album. She really shines on the storm. Very prominently used on this song. And uh, ju not just the quality of the vocals, but how haunting they are. So incredibly beautiful. And that uh, really sets the stage for the storytelling that happens in this song. This is a very strong storytelling song. And I can't think of a better example of setting the mood for a very dramatic or ominous tale. And we have in the past spoken often about the something is coming factor, that, that something is about to happen. And definitely you get that here. Maybe it's the first song that really has that in a, on a big country album. So this is a song of many transformations. And that, that is part of really the, the, what makes the song so magnificent. When the drums enter the picture after the initial Ebo part, they let Christine Berridge's vocal just remain hanging as the Ebo out. works incredibly well because for a song really with the guise of a slower ballad it really isn't it's um it is and it isn't really because the song builds a sense of urgency that goes hand in hand with the life and death situations that the story talks about and that is not really ballad material yet there is a haunting sad mournful quality strong melodic quality that kind of um would play well in a ballad. You could you could go either way with this song. So it uh, it finds a way that it it really works on all these levels. It retains a strong melody, mournful. Yet the drums in particular just whips up this quiet urgency from behind, and that is what the song excels at: quiet urgency, uneasy urgency. And uh, the strumming of the acoustic guitars is also very percussive and drives the tempo along. I really love the how the guitars stop. They, they complete one full line and then they stop and there's a couple empty bars and that just punctuates. It's so lovely. It's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. And Tony, what can we say about Tony? He provides such a lovely bedding for the music during the verses. And then he breaks out into a lovely bass run in, in, in the instrumental section between the verse and the chorus. And that really is a lovely bass moment on this album. But you almost miss out on that moment because that is where Christine Beveridge again emerges with another really haunting vocal just hanging over the proceeding. So that you, you can really decide which one. Do you go for the bass or do you go for the high ethereal vocal? You get both. It's just very, very, very lovely. And all the links, really, that I've been saying from one passage of the song to the other, whether it's from the first part of the intro to the more instrumental band part of it, and from the verse to the chorus, Christine Beveridge often provides the links to all these uh, sections and the link between them. She's the one that carries us onward, which, uh, again, is very interesting, not just from a musical perspective and how it sounds, but whether there's uh, storytelling involved in the music, which uh, I'll get back to. So the chorus, I mean, what do we call chorus? I mean, you can call the uh, My James part a chorus. You can call the I Know I Can Never Return part a chorus. In many ways, that's it kind of 
the chorus uh, term or, or that word, it becomes almost a bit limiting because you have many sections to the song. And the Ah, oh, My James, I, I kind of look at that as a chorus for a while. But then towards the latter end of the song, you get another chorus, which is the I Know I Can Never Return. Bridge doesn't uh, do any of them justice. They're more than a bridge. They are featured part of their sections. And for a song that develops as you go through it, that makes sense. It's um, You don't stay within the same format. And uh, the song changes. And so what what has that chorus function in the role will change. So I'm totally fine with that. And that's really also part of the whole big country epic term and what you know what makes this song larger than on quote-unquote normal song so as as mentioned before this album have many songs where the title does not come from the chorus and whatever the chorus is and uh, many choruses are not choruses in the traditional sense so you mentioned the outro and oh my gosh what a haunting outro that is what what a gorgeous outro it's uh I mean, I've, I've spoken about Christine Beveridge many times, but she has this haunting quality for all of this song, really. And uh, whether it's the ghost of a woman who was slain during the battles or the events of the song, uh, that's just hovering over the remains of her village that was attacked mm. and following the, the, the latter thing. Well, that's interesting. Or maybe, uh, yeah, maybe hovering over her own dead body, something like that, because... There's something dramatic or sinister. This is more than a backup vocal. This is a really um, life and death, really emotional, dramatic, ethereal, more than normal type of backing vocal. And the song, both the music and the lyrics, it's extremely cinematic. So you almost have your own mood rolling in your head when you listen to it. And if you do, then this voice has to become part of that movie in your head. Touches like that haunting vocal just becomes even more powerful. Where do you want to go with it? It can go a lot of places. But really, um, let's not forget Mark's drum in this outro. Mark is at his most busiest on this song during that outro. But there is something about the way that these drums are played and how that goes together with the haunting vocals and the overall mood in the song at that point. The drums manage to sound very dramatic. There is something still going on almost, like... Is the battle continuing? Um, is some, was there a last ambush? I mean, if you get into the lyrics, there's a point where the battle is seemingly over. And if you take aside the lyrics, where he is kind of looking wider at where he wants to go, if you look at the third verse, which is the one with actual story, what actually goes on, they went out there, they chased down the attackers, they took back their own, they came back. And then the song ends with very dramatic drums. Like, I don't know. There, there's a storytelling in music as well sometimes. And I just feel those drums mean more than just drums. They almost sound like the battle continues in, on some level or in some way. And so maybe the people who stood as victors in that final verse and returned home were ambushed again. Or maybe that's reading too much into it. But the point is really to me, something still goes on by way of that uh, that that outro. Uh, it's really storytelling with drums, so I just love it. I just think that's so good. And again, with that haunting vocal on top, mm. it's just uh, so much going on that really, uh, really, uh, uh, yeah, I, I get beyond words sometimes just listening to this song. <laughs> this is such such a song. 
tremendous moment. Um, it's also one of the more interesting songs to compare with the demo, simply because they are very, very different. The demo is definitely harder edged. It contains the meat and potatoes version of the finished version, the core verses and the My James choruses. Um, it's interesting with the demo how short it is. And I'm wondering if this is the the shortest song we have. And I don't know if even a demo should count as a song of a certain length in that regard. It's a, <laughs> it's more like a glimpse of something than an actual song. But it's a very short demo. I would have loved to have heard a demo that had more of the album uh, intact. Yeah, definitely. It is really short. It's it, it's so interesting how the, the demo and the final version are just so so different from that perspective. I mean, you go for, you go yes. from like the, one of the shortest songs, which is anything but an epic, to one of the longest, which is definitely an epic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I wonder if they, uh, because it would be the only demo if they had thought to build more onto it. It would be the only demo that was that incomplete, because com- compared to the album version, it's extremely incomplete. But if you wanted to make a song out of the demo, you well could do that too. You really could. So, and what's interesting yeah. to me about the demo is like, if they left the, the demo as is, if you just take the demo, it really would be hard to look at it as anything other than a historical commentary on that battle and what happened. Whereas, yeah. whereas because they added those other parts, that takes the song into, gives the song so much more meaning, such a, such deeper meaning. And I think it, the song still was, is cool in demo form. I mean, I'm totally fine with hearing a song about a battle that happened you know, hundreds of years ago. That's cool to me. But uh, this makes it so much, so much, it gives it so much more depth because of what they added to it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so, so many musical moments and it's just, um, obviously that's, uh, I always get on uh, or pick up on the music first when I listen to an album, the lyrics come later. And uh, especially when I was more of a kid, I needed to actually sit down and read to understand and take in and find out what they were singing about. But this one, I, I didn't have such a problem latching onto it. I think because everybody used their own background and this can really be about anything even though we know it's about the the jacobite rebellion and that final battle there um it fits a lot of things and for someone with my background for a long time i wondered if this was inspired by viking invasions Mm. so um, i don't see anything that is so specific in the lyrics that it couldn't be about anything Uh, I, i knew it would be a stretch but kind of you use your own references and i definitely use that and that, that, that puts a very different spin on this song, let me tell you. So you can, <laughs> the movie that was playing in my head has changed a little over the years, I can say. But um, obviously, there are historic events that uh, are more relevant to it than those. But I always saw it really as the three verses, thinking of the core verses. The first one, I always saw it as the attack. And the second one, I always saw as the chase. And the third one I saw as a mix of revenge and aftermath, which is kind of interesting. So um, not to cover them to the great detail you did, but just to quickly look at them with the first verse uh, coming from the hills with a tear in his eye and uh, observing his village uh, in, uh, you know, in flames, basically being attacked and maybe at the end of the attack, even with people being chopped down, which is where I always you know in my mind that's where the haunting female vocals came in uh maybe even the loved one of the person who came over the hills and observed this attack and saw how bad it was 
And I always took the tyranny, I kind of as, you know, that, that gets explained later in that verse when he sees the attack on his village. But it totally makes sense that he could come back from a battle, having lost that battle and having losses on the battlefield, already crying or already in tears or to describe at least that emotion in him and then saw this on top of it. Either way, it works. So this is really the verse that explains or outlines really the motivation for the second verse, which is the chase. We chased him for miles. I had tears in my eyes. So evidently, he didn't come back alone. I doubt he came alone, saw the attackers, and then chased them on his own, uh, going into Berserker and being so terrifying that they were chased by this one man. I think it needs to be a group, including this guy, who chases them. Right. And um, and uh, and uh, it's very funny that we we didn't speak about this at all amongst each other, and we came to the exact same conclusion about the title of the song, "The Storm," and uh, it being an allegory for really battle. I see it. Um, never thought about it much until uh, recently, in sitting down and spending more time in preparation for these discussions, but. Uh, it's another example of uh, where it's not his most used example. I think winter is one of his most used examples where winter is depression, but why couldn't he do the same for storm? And if he does that saying the storm broke upon us with fury and flame. Yeah. That's when they caught up with them. This is the chase verse and they've caught up with them and they did battle. And uh, the battle was so severe that uh, being washed out in the rain, it's kind of a continuation of the storm. The storm brings rain, and if it's a fierce storm, i.e. a fierce battle, then everybody kind of washes out or is a victim of that battle. It's, it's very fierce, and you see that really in the third verse, which I call the revenge and aftermath verse, where um, nobody smiled as we took back our own. Now, I um, the taking back of, of dead and injured makes sense. I always uh, had this scenario also in my head that they attacked the village and maybe took away some people with them. Maybe they took away their, their women. Maybe they took away this woman that is singing all these backup vocals, but she didn't make it through this battle. And that is the haunting outro of the song. I don't know. You can put a lot of things into this. Uh, so the, the movie in our heads, as we all listen to this and have always listened to this song, I'm sure... They are fascinating. I would love to see each and every one of them. But uh, yeah, and and not smiling, of, of, of course not. There's no glory. And even if you won, even if you caught up to the people you chased, even if you got back your own, uh, you think of the losses. You think of those who didn't make it. And looking at, at this song in particular, in these three verses, it seems like very few people made it. It uh, looks like a bloodbath. And that's uh, usually what it was like when you fought back in those days. So, um, th- and uh, this um, this is really the, the, the cleverness of Stuart's writing. If you know what the song is about, and that goes for every song we have discussed, if you know what it's about, um, obviously you, you get a lot back from that and you, you see his insights and stuff. But even if you just have your own frame of reference, it really can work. And that is the mark really of good songwriting. And I think the majority of people who write songs will be happy for you to use your own interpretations. And so for years, this for me was a Viking attack, then it became something more. And uh, in recent years, I uh, I took an interest in what it really was about. And it really was a comment under a YouTube video that sparked me. Uh, there is a video for the storm on uh, YouTube. 
and under it, there's a very short comment that, yeah, this is about the 1745 Jacobite rebellion. I saw the same comment. Yeah. And I just said, oh, really? Okay. And I, I tried to read more. There were no sources. I said, okay, where's the source here? And uh, as it turned out, I needed to go and read about that myself, just like you did. But uh, that 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 comment, seeing that, I think as far as three or four years ago, um, that, that really... It's it's only in these years that I got to the depth of this this thing because guess what we're not taught about this in Norwegian schools either, so uh, that's uh, yeah very very interesting. I, I wonder if this is taught to this degree in in UK schools. I'm sure it is to some level, but uh, this is very specific. This song, the what what battle it's inspired by and where it comes from. So maybe. Maybe you need to have a very special interest in it to really pick up on it in that depth. Um, yeah, we um, we have those the second level of choruses or whatever you want to call them. I know I can never return to the time of hope that I was born, that the strength of peace ran through my land. I think you covered that really well. But then again, when we walk away from the storm's roar, then I will be afraid no more. That just really nails the interpretation of storm as battle. We walk away from the battle's roar, then I'll be afraid no more. Because if you leave that violent past behind, then you, there, there is less to be afraid of. You don't have to worry about the next battle and who's going to attack us next or who do we have to go and attack next. And with that, you have uh, broken the chain of violence and you can go on. Interesting thing, though, that live, sometimes Stuart would shout out, meanwhile, before going into that section. So I kind of, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Yeah, I love that. Here you have a... Another Western reference, I guess. And, and you know what? I always thought about that part. I meant to bring this up. It, you, you're familiar with the theme song to the game show Jeopardy? I think that should be replaced with that part in the storm where he says, meanwhile, because that, that part in, in the song, in the show Jeopardy is meant to sort of connote a passing of time as you wait for something. And so it's that, that part always reminded me of that in the storm. And, and so when Stewart said, meanwhile, I thought that was perfect because that's exactly what that is. It's like you're waiting for the next thing to begin. So <laughs> meanwhile. Yeah, but also when he's when when he says that, that gives the impression that something is happening on this location, but then meanwhile back at this other location, this is what's going on there. But that's not really what the song is right, about. Right. So that's um, that is that is the meaning of meanwhile in this context. That that is how it's used. But uh, now, well, we have one thread of what actually goes on, and then we have really more uh, a wider commentary from the person with opinions on, on things rather than something happening. So, um, yeah, I, I doubt it was meant that serious, but we have to mention it in, in a deep dive. He said, meanwhile, <laughs> damn it. So we have Tony Butler's comments. Um, and he says, classic. I discovered my latent folk aside when we recorded this track. It hit me really hard. I felt such an affinity with the song and the subject that it helped me discover things about myself. I remember there was actually a very angry storm going on during the mixing of the track. Mark's drumming on the end is outrageous. Yeah, I, I agree with 
most of those, except I don't agree that there was a storm when I mixed it because I don't know that, but now I know. <laughs> so then I guess I agree with that too. Now that that's really good. And the fact that it helps me discover things about myself, it is that kind of song. It makes you think. It makes you uh, ponder, I guess, more than perhaps other song on the album. It, this is one of those songs that to me, I always, it always really rang true and it, it hit me very hard when I first heard it. This, this song really made me fall in love with Big Country. This encapsulates everything I want from the band, which is that ethereal, haunting, something more atmospheric thing. I mean, for me, Big Country was never the, the rock band. And I've said this before, for years, Big Country was the soft option in my record collection. I was listening to a lot of metal and a lot of really hard music. So I wasn't looking for that necessarily in Big Country. I, you know, I latched onto Chance it's very different. It's it that provides the type of softer stuff, quote unquote, that I would listen to, and uh, the storm provides that kind of epic moment that I would quote unquote you know go to. So yeah, for, for me this is huge. This is uh, I, I feel that probably we have a huge discrepancy with this one. I rank it as my number one, and it's not just number one on the crossing. This is one of my all-time favorite big country tracks. Oh, amazing! Well, I'm sure you're not alone. Um, for me, it's number seven. 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 Holy mother of a wonky wussuck. <laughs> Jeez. Seven. Yeah. What can I say? Man. There's just, there were always parts musically that just, I, even though I love the song, it just, uh, and like we keep saying, you know, seven on here is still very close to six, five, four, et cetera. But um, <laughs> I love the song, and and, and dissecting it so much, I, I've grown to love it even more. And uh, but there are some parts that don't do it as much for me as as other songs do. So yeah. it's number seven. Seven is respectable. I mean, what what does a ranking mean? It's uh, yeah. I mean, it all comes down to me. Like, which song would I reach for first if someone gave you the crossing? What song would I reach for first? Sure, there might be. Oh. I might be in a frame of mind at times to reach for the storm, but more often than not, it's going to be the the ones that I have at number one, et cetera. Yeah. I wouldn't say it necessarily is the storm every time, but it will very often be the storm for me. That That, that is the song. I, it never got old. And that's actually an interesting comment that a lot of the songs do have road wear and it's it's natural and i never reach for it and the storm never got to that That's point true. to this day it's it's as fresh as it ever was and when it comes on it still gives the same feeling and i, I wish i had that for more of these and it's not a reflection on those but I, I guess it's so deep this song reaches so deep inside me that it really it can't do that unless my inner self withers with it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Okay, so yeah, the storm is a huge song for me at number one and seven for you. The public plays it uh, quite high. It's number three. I can say that it's really close to number two. It, this is this was one of those that they kept switching spots as the votes came in, almost to the bitter end. Uh, but for now, um, yeah, it, it ended up three with an average of 4.5. Nine people put it at number one. Uh, if if my vote had counted, it would have been 10. But uh, nine people of those 80 and three people actually placed it last. Gosh, darn it. <laughs> that's incredible. Interesting. But that's a fairly high ranking. So 
as we are at the halfway point and at the end of episode uh, 81, let's just look at the ones we have so far. We have, of the five we have covered so far, The Storm is best of those with number three. In a Big Country is number four. Inverts is number six. Chance, number eight. And Thousand Stars, number nine. So we have yet both the number one and the number 10 slot. That comes on side two of this album. So The Storm, Karate Bar Countdown. Let's hear it. You sack of crap. Crossing the Roddy Bar Countdown. Zero. <laughs> All right, zero again. That's a little surprising. I thought uh, that song is made for for those things. Uh, maybe he had to, you know, mentally decide not to do them for that song because I can't imagine that he wouldn't have done them instinctually or instinctively. Yeah, it's kind of mentally a different type of song. So... I'm not too surprised that that one has zero, but yeah, there there could have been room for it. So that's episode 81. We were hoping to get four songs. We got three. We were hoping to get four songs in episode 80. We got two. So we're making progress. Yeah, this is definite progress. Maybe we'll get four in the next one. Well, let us know what you think, as usual, usual places, and uh, we'll be back soon. So farewell. Bye bye. <laughs> All right. Gosh, I gotta go. <laughs> Can't believe it on here this long. Yeah. Four hours.